0: Coming soon to own on video cassette.
1: Back on the Y2K front, despite all of the assurances that the Y2K computer problems are under control.
0: Team debut of Star Wars to be the opening act for a multi-billion dollar summer show. Only one question remains. Just how many box office records can one movie break?
1: You take the blue pill. The story ends. I see dead
0: people. Malkovich, Malkovich. You take the red
1: pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.
0: I will not apologize for what I need. I will not apologize for what I want. Five, four, three, two, one. Happy 1999. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to 1999, the year that rocked cinema. My name is Jared Stossel.
1: My name is Andrew Tucker. I think I'm melting into a puddle and I can't remember anymore.
0: And we are reporting to you live from the desert planet of Tatooine as we record our podcast to talk about Every film in the year, released in the year 1999, getting down to the core of why this is one of the most influential years in all of cinematic history.
1: Tatooine was a nice way to put that. I was going to say that I was in the seventh circle of hell.
0: That's another way to put it too. Um, figured I'd tie it back around to episode one. Um, oh, look, a do-back. Um, anyway. <laughs> God damn it, Jared. I <laughs> I found a way. All right. So this week we're talking about a film that ironically, as we're sitting here in the Heat stroke nightmare, that is California right now. Whose poster features a couple standing in the rain, which actually looks really nice right now. What I, is I, rain? I, yeah, it's it's the it's water falling from the sky when it's colder and water um, comes
1: from up there. Wow.
0: Yeah. Um, this week's movie is a film called The End of the Affair, um, and it was. A bit of a departure from films we've covered on this show. I think this was one of our first, like, more serious drama films that we've talked about.
1: Very, very dramatic.
0: Yeah. Initial reactions, Andrew. What did you think of this after after watching?
1: I thought it was all right. It's not really my cup of tea. You know.
0: Yeah. I got. It's about the it. same for me. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. Well, we're gonna jump right into this then because it is again, and we're going to say this over and over again, it is boiling hot here. So, let's set the scene. The End of the Affair was released on December 3rd, 1999 in the United States and February 11th, 2000 in the United Kingdom. It was written and directed by Neil Jordan. Brief synopsis from IMDb, a desperate man tries to find out why his beloved left him years ago. And now for a more extensive look into this film, Andrew, please give us the rundown.
1: Okay, first of all, this movie starts off with one of the most metal lines of all time, which is, this is a diary of hate. Like, think about that shit, dude. Like,
0: this is a diary of hate. It sounds like, like a slow so almost. <laughs> you could go
1: right into a fucking breakdown from that, dude. Anyway, starts out with this metal line, this is a diary of hate. And when Ray Fiennes said that shit, I believed him. Because if anybody knows a thing or two about hateful diaries, it's Tom fucking Riddle. Okay. That's true. So that makes total sense. We start things off on a rainy night in 1946. A novelist named Maurice Bendrix is out for an evening stroll when he happens upon an old buddy named Henry Miles. And when I say he's an old buddy, what I really mean is that they have a complicated relationship. Why is that? Because our buddy Voldemort has been sticking his elder wand in Henry's wife, Sarah. <laughs> well, at least he was two years ago. We're going to jump back and forth in time a lot during this movie, so try to keep up. And also, yeah, the movie's called The End of the Affair, but the affair's already over when the movie starts. I know. I don't get it either. So, anyway, in the present day, which is 1946, Bendrix's affair with Sarah has already been over for two years. And Bendrix decides that he's going to be a gentleman and walk Henry home because it's pouring rain and Henry doesn't have an umbrella. So he walks him home. And when they get back to Henry's place, Henry tells Bendrix that he's concerned Sarah is cheating on him. And the dramatic irony is palpable. You could cut it with a machete because we know that he'd already been cheating on him with, or wait, because we know that she'd already been cheating on him with Bendrix two years before. So anyway, pretty cool. This piques Bendrix's curiosity because he's a jealous dude, and when Sarah broke shit off with him two years before, she said there'd never be anybody else. So now, Bendrix tries to convince Henry to hire a private eye to spy on Sarah, like a period piece version of the show Cheaters, and when Henry refuses, Bendrix's curiosity gets the best of him, and he hires a private eye himself. You following me so far, Jared?
0: I think I am. I think I'm following you.
1: It's gonna get worse. (laughs) Because right. <laughs> meanwhile, Bendrix makes arrangements to meet up with Sarah, which definitely doesn't seem like a good idea to me anyway. And they have this weird, awkward meeting, which is interlaced with a bunch of really soft-focused, soap opera-style, saucy flashbacks of Bendrix and Sarah fucking during World War II. A lot. Like, the whole time. A lot, and yeah. Don't forget that Bendrix has a private eye named Parkus following Sarah around to find out who this mysterious third man is. Oh, and the private eye brings his son Lancelot on all of his little spy missions, which is totally inappropriate and is definitely not great parenting. Also, Lancelot has a bowling shoe-sized birthmark on his face, so that's pretty neat. Um, it, It doesn't really matter, but it does matter later. Anyway, Bendrix finds out from his private eye buddy that Sarah has been spending a lot of time behind closed doors with a priest named Father Richard Smythe, even though she's been pretending to have dentist appointments with this dude for some reason. It's all very mysterious. So we go back into the flashbacks for a little while. And most of it's just more fucking and conversations about how Bendrix is jealous of Henry and wants Sarah to leave him, which she doesn't want to do. And their affair is super passionate. But unfortunately, it's also World War Two and a V1 flying bomb hits Bendrix's place while they are fucking. And Bendrix gets blasted down the stairs like a fucking ragdoll and appears to be like 150 percent dead. And then we switch to Sarah's perspective to find out that she's made a bargain with God. And if God brings Bendrix back, which was hard to say, and I did it on the first try. I just want to have, you know, she'll never see him again. And she'll give herself to the church or whatever. Okay. Keeping up keeping up good because back in 1946 now (laughs) parkas is still investigating sarah and father dick and as part of his investigation he manages to steal sarah's diary and when bendrix reads it he finally gains insight into what sarah's been thinking over the last two years and guess what she's been in love with bendrix all along because that elder wand is some good wand if you know what i mean (laughs) she misses that shit so now that bendrix knows how sarah really feels bendrix basically stalks her and begs her to come back to him and she's like you know what i'm down i'll just break my promise with god and sort of see what happens which doesn't make any fucking sense because the whole movie she's been terrified that god was gonna like smite her or smote her or whatever the correct tense of that word is but she just says fuck it and then meanwhile henry's figured all this shit out he knows what's going on and he's like Sarah, please don't go. Like, I know you're fucking Bendrix, and he has a bigger wand than I do, but, like, I love you, and I'm your husband and stuff. And she's like, fuck off, Henry. And then she goes to Brighton with Bendrix for the weekend, and then Parkus shows up, and he's investigating fucking Bendrix now because of Henry, and it's all coming around. And the whole time they're there, Sarah's coughing like a fucking COVID patient and shit. And then the two rekindle their love. But then shit gets awkward because Henry actually shows up and he's like, Hey, guess what? I just heard from your doctor like a day ago. Cause we have to travel and there's no text messaging. Uh, and he was like, you're going to die. So we find out that Sarah has a terminal illness. And then in a weird, like really unprecedented kind of turn of events, Henry asks Bendrix to move into their house. And they do like a, like a kind of three thing together. Uh, Until Sarah dies and then they go to the funeral and you find out that Lance no longer has his weird birthmark And that's where Sarah kissed him. So maybe God was part of her all along Okay, so I recognize that that rundown was probably much longer than usual Probably much more confusing than usual and probably much more boring than usual But that's because this movie is long confusing and boring so it's not my fucking fault okay
0: and if you agree with what andrew just said and you understand that it was a bit longer that the film was a bit more boring it may have been a little bit hard to follow you're not alone There's certainly good moments to this movie and interesting moments but it runs a bit slower than usual and it can be hard to keep track of everything luckily we're here to help you out with that but we got to go back to the beginning of this so let's go back and talk about the inspiration of this film Um, And how this was also inspired by a book.
1: Let's do it. And we're going to put the next portion of the podcast in soft focus to indicate to you that it's a flashback.
0: (laughs) Well played. So like last episode's film, The Haunting, this week's film is based on a novel from the 1950s, which is called The End of the Affair by Graham Greene, which was published in 1951. And so we want to start by providing a little bit of background on Graham Greene because he was a pretty trippy dude.
1: Dude, that's an understatement. This guy was odd.
0: Henry Graham Greene was born in 1904 in Hertfordshire, England. He was the fourth of six children. His parents, Charles Henry Greene and Marion Raymond Greene, were first cousins, so that's oh, cool. Oh, no.
1: So how many toes did he have? Ah. Uh,
0: His family was pretty influential in England, in part because they owned Green King Brewery, which remains the UK's largest pub retailer and brewer to this day. That's true. And if you're a beer geek like Andrew is, um, you might be able to recognize quite a few of the beers manufactured by Green King, most notably Abbott Ale and Old Speckled Hen, formerly brewed by Moreland.
1: I have had both of those, especially when I was
0: in London. Are they good?
1: They are about as good as beer in London gets.
0: All right, then. (laughs) Anyway, like lots of kids from well-off families in England used to do, Green attended a boarding school where he was bullied relentlessly. So relentlessly, in fact, that before the age of 16, he tried to kill himself in a variety of ways, including once by playing Russian roulette and once by taking aspirin before going swimming in the school pool. And I I need to ask you, what does that mean?
1: I don't know. I was just going to say the same thing to you. I don't. I don't know what the connection between aspirin and swimming is.
0: Hmm, might be unless to you
1: took like forty-five aspirin and then went into the pool. I That's could see fun. that being a problem. But if you had like a dose of aspirin and then went swimming, that just seems like you're gonna swim without a headache.
0: I'm pretty sure I've done that. So yeah. A- anyway, are you okay? Yes, I'm good. okay. Good, good. <laughs> This might be something to Google after so I can figure that out. Um, and as a 16-year-old, he was sent to London for six months for psychoanalysis, which was a pretty uncommon move back then. Then again, people didn't always take mental health that seriously back then, but Not anyway. then, they'd just be like,
1: oh, the boy's fucked up. Just Yeah. He's so, got a little bit off in his rocker, yeah? He'll figure it out.
0: So from there, Green returned to boarding school as a day student for a while. And soon after that he did what everyone does he signed up as a member of the communist party of great britain for a couple of years he tried to score an invitation to the new soviet union but they weren't interested in bringing him over
1: he's like hey guys i'm a little communist guy can i come hang out in the soviet union and they were like
0: no so when that didn't work out he decided to study history at Balliol college in oxford he was still a student there when he published his first work which was a shitty book of poems called Babbling April in 1925.
1: The name alone makes me feel like it probably wasn't great.
0: After leaving Oxford, Green worked as a private tutor for a little while before eventually turning to journalism. He soon got a job at the Nottingham Journal, and while he was working there, he got a letter from a woman named Vivian Dayrell Browning, who was a British writer regarded as the world's foremost expert on, and hold on, On dollhouses? On dollhouses. On dollhouses. I didn't know that the world needed an expert on dollhouses. I didn't know it was a thing either, but hey, this podcast is a learning experience. Good
1: for you, Vivian. Everyone's got to have their own thing, you know? Yeah,
0: Yeah, exactly. Vivian was a very religious woman, and she had written the letter to Green to correct him on a point of Catholic doctrine that she'd seen in one of his articles. Even though Green was an agnostic at the time, he and Vivian started corresponding frequently, and they started to fall in love. Oh, that's so cute. This was when Green first started dipping his toes into religion, and when he started to think about marrying Vivian, it occurred to him that he, quote, "...ought at least to learn the nature and limits of the belief she held." At first, he wasn't sold on the whole Jesus thing, and he was even known to get into arguments with his local priest on the ground of dogmatic atheism, as you're wont to do. His main difficulty with religion was what he termed the if surrounding God's existence, he found, however, that after a few weeks of serious argument, the if was becoming less and less improbable. So, Green was baptized on February 26, 1926, and he married Vivian on October 15, 1927, at St. Mary's Church in Hampstead, North London. So what you're saying is...
1: Dipping into Catholicism so you can get laid, when Catholicism is a religion that's historically sort of anti-laying, seems like a weird move, but I guess it worked. So good for you, Graham. There you go. You did it. A couple of years after getting married, Green published his first novel, which was called The Man Within. And people liked Green's prose a lot more than they liked his shitty poems from back in the day. In fact, the reception for The Man Within was so favorable that Green decided to quit his sub-editor job at the Times to work as a full-time novelist. Unfortunately, his next two books, The Name of Action and Rumor at Nightfall, were almost as bad as his book of shitty poems, and apparently they sucked so much that he later disowned them entirely. So, not a great career progression so far. His first real success as a novelist was a book called Stambul Train from 1932, which was taken on by the book society and adapted as the film Orient Express in 1934. So you've probably heard of that film before.
0: I haven't heard of Orient Express, but I've heard of and this is where it's super confusing. I've heard of Murder on the Orient Express, which is yeah, a different on a movie. Different movie. I've never yeah. heard of Orient Express though. Yeah. Just Polar just
1: Express th- is also a different movie. <laughs> They have a lot of similarities. It, Tom Hanks Tom, is in both
0: of them. I was going to say, does Tom Hanks run around uh, singing songs about hot chocolate? He does, yeah.
1: He was alive in 1934 and <laughs> very, intru- uh, very interested in hot chocolate at the time. You know, at this point, um, the way
0: 2020 is going, I wouldn't be surprised if he was. And he was just like this this immortal being <laughs> lived.
1: So You heard it here first. Tom Hanks anyway. is a vampire. Anyway, in addition to writing these two novels... Graham Greene supplemented his income by writing freelance book and film reviews for a couple of publications, and this is where he got into a little bit of trouble. See, yeah, the intrigue, right? In 1937, Greene wrote a film review of Wee Willie Winky, which was an adventure drama film directed by John Ford, starring Shirley Temple, Victor McLaglen, and Cesar Romero. And in Greene's review, he wrote that Shirley Temple, who was only nine years old at the time, by the way, Displayed a quote dubious coquetry, which appealed to quote middle-aged men and clergymen.
0: I feel quote. like what this is talking about, but what does coquetry mean?
1: A coquette is like a like a flirtatious. Woman. That's what I
0: figured this was gonna be. Yeah. You don't need to so say he's saying Ugh.
1: that Shirley Temple, who's nine, was being very flirtatious towards the middle-aged men watching wee willy winky
0: so the bottom line is men are fucking awful and they always have been but please continue
1: exactly so as you can imagine a lot of people were put off by that comment including 20th century fox who had made wee willy winky and they said "Uh uh-uh you don't do that shit and they sued him for 3,500 pounds plus costs and the whole situation was such a fucking mess that Green left the UK to hide out in Mexico for a while until after the trial was over. So this, wow. is, this is interesting too, Jared, because if this were today, Green would be canceled beyond any kind of redemption. The second
0: right? the, re- the second the interview or the review dropped online, he would, yeah, done.
1: Yeah, he never would have published another book again. But back then, this whole hideout in Mexico thing actually worked out. And it was more like a little mini vacation for him. And so he was just hanging out over there in Mexico, sipping tequila, eating the worm, and working on his next masterpiece, The Power and the Glory. And so despite that whole Shirley Temple debacle, Green had become known as one of the finest writers of his generation by the 1950s. So he he got over that little cancellation pretty quickly
0: yeah and it's another thing important to note about green as he was writing more of these stories he originally started dividing his fiction into two genres there were thrillers and then there was literary works so we'll break down what both of these essentially meant to him so the thrillers category which green typically referred to as entertainments or your mission impossibles um were mostly mystery and suspense books such as the ministry of fear
1: I picture some guy just being like, oh, these are the entertainments. These aren't serious, you see. These are just for fun. These are just for goofs.
0: Literary works such as The Power and the Glory were considered novels. Novels. And these were the works that Green thought his literary reputation would be based on. Notably, the line between these two subgenres in Green's catalog started to blur towards the end of Green's career. And by the time the collected edition of Green's works published in twenty two volumes between nineteen seventy and nineteen eighty two, the distinction between novels and entertainments is no longer maintained. All are now considered novels.
1: Yeah, so this this to me is just this guy being kind of a douche. Yeah. No, these are my good works, you see. These ones are just for fun, like I said. These are the popcorn novels, and these are the ones that win the prizes, you see. But these ones get on the book
0: list. <laughs> it's kind of funny that he had that, class, that classification, and he kind of put his books in this, here's the fun ones, but here's the more serious ones. Green would have really gotten along with another novelist that we've actually talked about on this show that ties into another movie and that author's Ian Fleming. And that's because many of the books Green had classified as thrillers, such as The Confidential Agent, The Quiet American, Our Man in Havana, and The Human Factor, showed Green's avid interest in the workings and intrigues of international politics and, more specifically, espionage. Mr. F. Yeah. (laughs) Always with the rest of development. I love it. Always. Um, And it turns out that that espionage was more than just a casual topic of interest because like Ian Fleming, wait for it, Green was also a member of MI6.
1: Were they just letting anybody who knew how to write more than six words in a row into MI6
0: back in the day? I mean, that's kind of what's happening with the Trump administration, so it doesn't surprise me. (laughs) Hey! hey yo. Yeah. I mean, they did it with the Bush administration, too. So anyway, throughout his life, Green traveled from England to what he called the world's wild and... That's not fair to the Bush administration. At least the people in the Bush administration read a fucking book. Throughout his life, Green traveled from England to what he called the world's wild and remote places. Over the course of these travels, he was recruited into MI6 by his sister, Elizabeth, who worked for the agency. After he was recruited, he was posted to Sierra Leone during World War II. And there, he quickly made friends with the supervisor, Kim Philby, who would later be revealed as a Soviet agent. And that, and that has absolutely nothing to do with this movie aside from the World War II connection, but we thought it was interesting, so there you go.
1: Also, here's a fun aside. On the last episode we talked about how interesting it is that everything seems to tie back to World War II. Yeah. And then this week, we watch a movie that takes place during fucking World War II. Yeah. And all the shit leading up to it is related to World War II. This,
0: again, this is our, is there a Simpsons reference? Ours is now, is there a World War II reference? There's some kind of weird, one of these in movies. the
1: string theory, there's some kind of thread connecting 1999 and World War II, and it's just
0: getting pulled back and forth.
1: It's very Ever so very, gently.
0: Yeah, it's very strange. But um, so we've talked about thrillers and we've talked about literary works. But there was a third subcategory to Green's work, and it was one he wasn't too fond of.
1: This is the erotic. Uh, <laughs> this is the erotic Harry Potter fan fiction.
0: Close. It was the four major Catholic. No, no, I'm kidding. Um, it was one <laughs> of. It was one he wasn't too fond of. The four major Catholic novels. Lots of people categorized Green as a Roman Catholic novelist, but Green objected very strongly to that categorization. He preferred to be thought of as a novelist who happened to be Catholic. Kind of like, um, oh, fuck. Kind of like, what did Attack Attack say years ago? We're not a Christian band, but we've written about things like Jesus and things. like So it's kind of like that. Um,
1: (laughs) I never thought that we'd hear Graham Green being compared to Attack Attack. Attack,
0: but here we are. But if it was going to happen,
1: it'd be on this show.
0: (laughs) But even so, Catholic religious themes are at the root of much of Green's writing, to the point where scholars consistently refer to a handful of his works as, quote, the four major Catholic novels. Those novels are Brighton Rock, The Power and the Glory, The Heart of the Matter, and, of course, The End of the Affair. The
1: End of the Affair is widely regarded as one of Green's best and most personal novels. Set in London during and just after the Second World War, the novel examines the obsessions, jealousy, and adultery between three central characters, writer Maurice Bendrix, Sarah Miles, and her husband, civil servant Henry Miles. And according to several accounts, all of this jealousy and extramarital affair nonsense were inspired by Green's very own extramarital affair. Are you ready for the TMZ-style scoop here? We're going to get into full TMZ mode. So pretend that I'm leaning on your cubicle, drinking some kind of 7-Eleven beverage, and there's just cameras panning around the room to different people's reactions over this next part, okay? Can you do that for me?
0: I can't because you're not an asshole. You're a good person. You're not Harvey Levin.
1: You don't know that for sure. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot about me you don't know yet,
0: Jared. (laughs) Continue.
1: (laughs) Anyway, if the rumors are true, then Green was dickin' Lady Catherine Walston, the wife of a wealthy British landowner. But to be fair... Lady C was sleeping with just about everybody, including an IRA commander, a prominent general, a Cambridge Don, and a powerful Jesuit priest. So, Yeah, she was doing her fair share of exploring, if you will. After publishing The End of the Affair in 1951, Green himself conceded that the novel was autobiographical, but he never fully admitted to the rumors about Lady Catherine Walston. So we don't know for sure if they're true, but he did leave behind some clues, because the British version of the book was dedicated simply to C, which of course is the first letter in Catherine. And the American version was dedicated to Catherine, so that's a little more on the nose. Also, Green's own house at 14 Clapham Common North Side was bombed during the Blitz, just like Bendrix's flat is in the novel. Interesting. So, that's a bit of a dink, don't you think? I'd say so. I would, too.
0: Time to get so, out the handy-dandy notebook and uh, start looking for... Oh, wait, no, that's... A, a you know, that's show. a good Never point,
1: mind. dude. I'm going to sit down in my thinking chair and think. <laughs> think. Think.
0: Think. Think. think.
1: think. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it. In addition to revealing some spicy details about his affair, the novel also represents a change in Green's narrative strategy. Unlike his previous novels, The End of the Affair tells the same events from multiple perspectives. It also uses an authorial voice that shifts from character to character, providing threads of an intriguing puzzle that viewers can fit into a coherent whole. Finally, some critics regard the novel as much subtler and more sympathetic in treating religious themes than Green's other spiritual novels. Which is interesting because it's still pretty fucking heavy-handed with the Catholicism. Yeah. And in fact, there are some people that argue that this is the most Catholic of his novels. So there's a bit of a a divide here. The first three novels, Brighton Rock, The Power and the Glory, and The Heart of the Matter, depict God as a source of grace in people's spiritual lives. So they're like, oh, God is this like lovely thing for me. Hooray, right? However, in the end of the affair, Green presents a more active, involved God who's like an actual force in people's earthly lives. So he can actually do shit to you. For example, performing miracles like he does through Sarah in the book and kind of in the movie. It's implied in the movie. I think it's much more direct in the book. While all four novels address the ideas of mortal sin and redemption sounds like a Slayer album title The End of the Affair (laughs) is sometimes seen as the most obvious because Sarah is painted as a saint whose death is followed by a series of miracles. So, there's different opinions on this and we're going to get into several differing opinions throughout this show. Like, there's some Not real controversy, but there's definitely some back and forth on what's going on here.
0: Definitely. And I think it's interesting you said, like, when you talked about how there's certain things that are more direct in the book rather than they are in the film. It's weird that you say that because in many ways the end of the affair was destined for the screen from the start. And it's, you're kind of thinking like, okay, well, if it didn't, why didn't it translate as well? Like, other things that we'll get into a little bit later. But it's like, why would you think that that movie was... Absolutely, going to end up on the big screen. And it's because damn near everything that Green wrote ended up on screen at some point. So, Green was one of the more cinematic of the 20th century writers. Most of his novels, many of his plays, and a bunch of his short stories have been adapted for either film or television over the years. And according to IMDb, there are at least 66 titles based on Green material between 1934 and 2010 alone. Jesus one Christ. Of- yeah, it's a lot. It's like, it's a lot. like S- Stephen King numbers. One of his thrillers, A Gun for Sale, was filmed at least five times under different titles. Holy shit. And many more novels were filmed twice. Some examples include Brighton Rock in 1947 and 2011, The Quiet American in 1958 and 2002, and of course, The End of the Affair in 1955 and 1999.
1: Hold up a second, Jared. Yes? Are you telling me there's another version of this movie floating around out there?
0: That's correct. Just oh like last God. week's film, The End of the Affair had already been adapted into a film version once before 1999.
1: Tell me all about it.
0: You, um, you wanted to ask me something? Or- oh,
1: yes, yes. You see, no matter
0: how inventive a writer thinks he is, there are always certain things he has to know. In my novels, which ones have you read?
1: Well, I haven't read any. Oh. Well, let me think. What about domestic routine? What time do you have breakfast in your house? Oh,
0: about eight thirty is a rule, except except on Saturdays. Mm-hmm. The first end of the affair was a black and white nineteen fifty-five British romantic drama directed by Edward Dimtrick, also based on Graham Greene's novel. The film was produced by Columbia Pictures and starred Deborah Kerr, Van Johnson, Peter Cushing, and John Mills. From what I can tell, it took a bit of work to get this movie off of the ground. Originally, Green was supposed to write the screenplay himself, as he did with a few of his other adaptations, namely *Brighton Rock* and *The Third Man*.
1: Yeah, he did that a lot, actually.
0: Yeah, and it's—I'm almost seeing it like—I'm almost seeing that as a practice that's still pretty commonly adapted, where the uh, the novelists are, even if they're not writing the screenplay, they're still—they're getting the chance to put as much input as they can into the work, so that it's faithfully adapted.
1: Which is pretty Um, cool.
0: Yeah, I like that. Um, however, the script ended up being written by Lenore Coffee and then reworked by several other people to avoid problems with the censors.
1: And that's and Lenore Coffee is like the drink and spelled
0: the same. Weirdly enough, one of the things they were trying to do with the script was make the adultery less clear. And when you consider that adultery is like the entire plot of the story, literally in the title, that maybe wasn't such a great idea.
1: <laughs> hey, let's take what this
0: movie is about. And then make it not about that so much, huh? Oh, Hollywood. <laughs> anyway, in addition to the screenwriting woes, the rights to the movie itself changed hand a couple of times before the film was made. And if that, and if that wasn't enough, the casting changed a few times too. Bendrix is originally supposed to be played by an American actor despite being British in the book. At one time, Gregory Peck was in line to play the part before it finally went to Van Johnson. And Gene Simmons was considered for the role of Sarah before the part went to Kerr. Not that Gene Simmons. Okay, There's I was going to say, that might have been some Gene strange
1: Simmons. casting. Yeah, J-E-A-N. Can you imagine Sarah with like the makeup on and the spiky <laughs> stuff and like sticking her tongue out super far and shit?
0: With all that shit sorted out, the movie was filmed largely on location in London, particularly in and around Chester Terrace. And upon its completion, it was entered into the 1955 Cannes Film Festival. Despite the fact that the 1955 version of the film was nominated for a handful of awards and maintains an 80% positive rating on Rotten Tomatoes, it actually doesn't seem like the the movie received a very warm reception. One article in Variety described the 1999 version of the film as, quote, brilliant and notes that the novel was, quote, previously brought to the screen unsatisfactorily by Edward Dimtrick in 1955. Green himself described the 1955 version as, quote, the least unsatisfactory adaptation of one of his religious novels. (laughs) That's
1: that's such a backhanded fucking compliment, dude.
0: It's a very British compliment. Oh, it was least unsatisfactory. (laughs) Um, While he thought Kerr gave an extremely good performance, he wasn't sold on the rest of the actors, particularly Van Johnson. Green said Van Johnson had been miscast and that this had, quote, spoiled the film, claiming he was too young to play a middle aged writer.
1: Even though he was like 38 years old at the time.
0: Yeah. According to one story, when Green visited the set at Shepperton Studios during filming and observed an intimate scene between Sarah and Bendrix, he cringed to watch his words being brought to life before him. Writing in The Observer of London, Quentin Falk described Green's reaction, quote, Green once told me, with, slight, with still slightly shocked recall, they were trying to do one of those shots where you get the same scene from each person's point of view. When the camera eventually moved to be on her in the same close embrace, he put chewing gum in his mouth. That's so not necessarily the thing you want to hear about your work. Or no, and you have to understand,
1: funding, too, that it, like in the 50s, chewing gum was like the devil's object. People were so fucking angry about chewing gum all the time.
0: As they inhaled, like, 20,000 cigarettes a day.
1: Yeah. No, they thought chewing gum was just the worst
0: shit. With that being said, there was the movie in... You just heard all about the movie adaptation in the 50s. But now comes the time for it to become a thing in the 90s. And to get its own remake. Possibly one that could be better than its predecessor. So, we move to the pitch in the cell. And the 1999 version of the end of the affair first took root in the early 90s. That's
1: right. So the year was 1992. Is that the year that you were born, Jared? 93. 93. Okay. So, ooh, so your parents were fucking in 92.
0: Oh, shut up, you asshole. Okay.
1: So I'm going to start over. The year was 1992. Jared's parents were just getting I ready to make to God. a baby Jared. <sighs> And a little movie called The Crying Game was picking up steam at the box office. You know what? Maybe they went out for a nice movie night. They went to see The Crying Game. It was very romantic. They got home, and they made a baby Jared. And then in 1993, out you came.
0: Sure. That's... All right, fine.
1: Anyway, Jared's crying, so I'm going to (laughs) continue. The film written and directed by Neil Jordan was recognized with some major end-of-the-year accolades. And we're talking 22 wins and 46 nominations at various major award shows, including Best Original Screenplay at the Oscars. So, despite all that success, Neil Jordan was actually still pretty, like, self-effacing about his Oscar. And he said, nobody knows who got the Oscar for Best Script. It's the consolation prize, isn't it? It's the one, they should have given it Best Picture. Oh, well, we'll just give him Best Screenplay. They remember Best Actor, don't they? And Best Picture. That's it. They definitely don't remember screenplay. So he was like, yeah, I won an Oscar, but it's no big deal because nobody fucking remembers those anyway. So womp womp. Despite his modesty, Jordan's win made the writer director, who was already a pretty hot commodity in the early 90s, even hotter. So hot right now. <laughs> and around that time, Jordan discovered that Sony owned the rights to Graham Greene's novel The End of the Affair, and he approached the studio about adapting it interestingly jordan was unaware of the existing version of the film from 1955 when he reached out to sony pictures he'd never heard of it never seen it but that didn't seem to make much of a difference neither did the fact that this movie was a bit of a gamble for sony because during this time in the 90s sony had been leaning really hard into a genre that's pretty much on the opposite end of the spectrum from the end of the affair and that genre was goofy comedies marketed to teen audiences Two of Sony's most successful movies in 1999 were Adam Sandler's Big Daddy and Martin Lawrence's Blue Streak, and two of their larger failures were Random Hearts and Jacob the Liar. So, given that trend, making a quiet, character-driven drama like The End of the Affair seemed like a bit of a weird choice and kind of a dangerous one. And Jordan himself even said, quote, it's a period piece and is tremendously adult in its concerns. You never know whether anyone out there will say, yes, I get it. So the question really is who's going to see it. And I think that was probably the question on a lot of reporters' minds at the time, too. So despite this departure from the formula, Sony was ready and willing to hand the reins over to Jordan. So they gave him a $23 million budget, they fully financed it themselves, and they told him to make something better than the disastrous Jeez. 1955 version of the movie. So he goes, oh shit, I better watch that one. Yeah, And he did. But like I said, Jordan was in high demand at the time the end of the affair had to be put on the back burner temporarily while Jordan finished up three movies that he had already agreed to make for Warner brothers. Those were interview with the vampire in 1994, Michael Collins in 1996 and the butcher boy in 1997. He was also previously committed to directing a film for dreamworks. And that was a really, really shitty 1999 movie called in dreams. Awesome. He had a lot of shit, right? Aren't you excited? (laughs) I am so stoked, dude. Um, But yeah, so he had to do a lot of shit before he could actually get to the end of the affair.
0: Yeah, so with his fourth and final previous commitment out of the way, he was finally able to focus once again on the end of the affair. So this is, it's almost shaping up to be like a passion project for him at this point. So the writer-director, who was 49 at the time, said, quote, when I finished the In Dreams thing and that didn't go that well, I threw myself into this. He spent the next two months working feverishly on the screenplay and in september 1997 jordan delivered the first draft of the script to sony reflecting on that period of time jordan said it was a lovely time the material was great and green is dead so he wasn't around to punish me (laughs) which is kind of (laughs) funny
1: dude that's fucking hilarious to me
0: but even though green wasn't there to like physically look over his shoulder Jordan's first draft adhered pretty closely to the plot of the book, even if he did tone down the religious notes because they were, quote, tough for a modern audience. That said, he did need to make a handful of changes. Jordan noted that while Green's novels already seemed patently cinematic, they also depended really heavily on internalized drama. And as we both learned in our screenwriting courses over the years, you can't watch internal drama play out on the screen.
1: No, I used to have a screenwriting instructor who would talk about this difference, right? And he'd say, okay, here's me thinking about internal drama. And he'd just stand, stand still at the front of the room and do nothing. And then he'd go, here's me acting on my internal drama. And he'd like pick up an eraser and throw it across the room at somebody. And it proves that difference of like, okay, you can't really show one of these things on screen, but you can totally show the other things.
0: So this meant that Jordan needed to take a few liberties when he was writing. He said, quote, I think it's a great opportunity to explore a love affair from two different points of view and a great book about jealousy. But there was a beautiful human drama in the book that Green didn't quite bring to the surface because he was so concerned with metaphysics, religion, and philosophy. You can feel him manipulating the characters towards emotions and issues he wanted to explore.
1: And that's another difference between novels and screenplays, too. In a yeah. novel, you can sort of make the characters go where you want. But when you're working on a screenplay, you kind of have to let the story lead the characters. You know what I mean? It's not, one is more of a push, one is more of a pull.
0: Yeah. I think it's, I don't know, it's like, I'm even thinking about like books, like looking at, look at like Harry the Harry Potter books. Like you're there with, it, it's almost interesting to see like, and also how much involvement the author had in the movies themselves in terms of where the characters go, things like that. Because, you get all of their thoughts. You're with them. Every, all the characters when they're going to class, when they're going to hang out with friends, when they're go- like, you see every little bit of thing. And then there were, and something that I didn't get when I was growing up and watching those movies, I was like, well, the book was longer, and there was this whole scene, and this, and, like, why aren't they doing that? Like, he's with his love interest for, like, two seconds. In the book, they had, like, full chapters. and I'm, And then I realized later, it's like, oh, because you can't, there's a lot of internal drama that was written out on the pages that in the book
1: adaptations are so hard.
0: Yeah. It's because you have to get every feeling, everything that that character gave you and condense it down into this much time on the screen. And sometimes giving you just a few seconds for something that would have taken up like 10 pages in a book. Exactly. It's, it's very fascinating But Jordan did not, however, stay true to the 1955 version of the movie. And according to Jordan, the 1955 version plotted along, squelching the high sensuality of Green's work and emphasizing its concerns with morality, making it an overwrought tale about guilt and Catholicism. You had a lot of scenes of people standing outside churches saying, it's me you love, Mr. Jordan said. While the story and most of the characters are the same, Jordan's 1999 adaptation was pretty different from the original. For starters, the 1955 movie is told primarily in chronological order with only a handful of flashbacks. Jordan's version is told almost entirely in flashbacks that tend to jump around on the timeline.
1: Remember that whiplash you were getting when I was doing my rundown a few yes. minutes ago? Yeah, that's Buckle up for that shit if you watch the movie for real, because it yeah. happens a lot.
0: In addition, Jordan omitted a bunch of characters such as Sarah's mother. He also, transport, he also transposed aspects of some characters onto others. For example, the birthmark on Lancelot's face, which used to be on the face of a full-grown man. Stephen Woolley, the film's producer and a longtime Neil Jordan collaborator, said that the new script reflected a sea change in what Hollywood would and wouldn't accept. Tongue twister. They couldn't be as fair to the novel then, he said. We can be much more explicit now. Green was a controversial writer at the time, and now we regard him as a classic novelist, so we can make a much truer version of his book.
1: And what he's saying there about Green being a controversial novelist and then becoming like a classic novelist is the same kind of thing that happened in the movie industry, right? Where something that you would see on screen in 1955 might be super, super, super like risque, and then that same thing in 1999 is totally allowable. So, like, yeah. the kinds of sex scenes that you get in this movie in 1999, they could not show you in 1955.
0: Oh, exactly. It, it's it's interesting to see kind of, like, how the code of what's acceptable and what isn't has changed. But more on that later when we get into Ooh. some of our uh, controversy stuff. But anyway, we have a writer-director. We have a producer. Now it's time to talk about our cast. Would you like to talk about the first cast member of this film?
1: Sure thing, dude. I'll do it. <laughs> Um, all right, man. So our first cast member is Rafe Fines. Not Ralph Fiennes, but Rafe Fiennes.
0: Whereas as and I he said plays when I was a kid, Ralph Fiennes. And Ralph my mom Fiennes. Like, yeah. My mom was like, <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> anyway, we got motherfucking Voldemort. And he plays Maurice Bendrix, which they sometimes pronounce as Morris Bendrix, but I can't tell if that's a British accent thing or what. But anyway, he plays Bendrix. Before the end of the affair, Ray Fines was in Quiz Show, Schindler's List, The English Patient, and The Prince of Egypt. And we will see him again in 1999, not once, not twice, but several times. He's in Sunshine, he's in Wungen, and he's even the narrator in Winnie the Pooh, Seasons of Giving, <laughs> which was a straight-to-video release that we're going to be talking about at some point in the near future. After 1999, he played Voldemort, of course. That's probably his most well-known role, even though you don't really... See him as Voldemort. He's in the Grand Budapest Hotel, Red Dragon, in Bruges, The Hurt Locker, The Reader, Clash of the Titans, Skyfall, Hail Caesar, Kubo and the Two Strings, the Lego Batman movie, and a bunch of other upcoming things too, like The Kingsman and No Time to Die. Basically, what I'm trying to tell you is that Ray Fine's career has been just okay. Um, <laughs>
0: Such an understatement. He's been like some of like the greatest films and some of the coolest projects um, ever. So good for him.
1: Good for him. And when talking about why he cast Rafe Fiennes, Jordan said, I thought Rafe would convey that disenchanted, embittered 1940s intellectual. <laughs> Jordan and Fiennes actually went out to dinner after Jordan had finished a draft of the story to discuss Bendrix's character. And the director said, I couldn't think of a better Graham Greene protagonist. He embodies that disenchanted character. However, Fines wasn't immediately on board. Jordan said, quote, I suppose he was worried about the fact that after English patient, it would feel like a repetition. And I was worried about that too. And apparently a lot of critics were as well, because every single thing that you read about the end of the affair mentions the English patient at yeah. least once. But luckily, Fines took a shine to the director, and he said, neither of us is always socially at ease. And he commented that Bendrix was a tortured character. And I loved that. So he liked the, the idea of working with Jordan and playing Bendrix. He was also drawn to the film because of its exploration of the choices and burdens of religious faith. And he noted that his mother was a disillusioned Catholic and he himself rejected Catholicism at the age of 13. He said, quote, In my mother's family, the debate about faith and belief was very central. So this movie was right up his alley. It was exploring the same themes that he'd been dealing with his whole life and he was ready to rock and roll.
0: The person that was cast alongside him as the love interest was also another another very notable actor, um, or at least has come to be notable in recent years. But uh, he starred alongside Julianne Moore, um, who played Sarah Miles. Before this year, she was in Shortcuts, Vanya on 42nd Street, Safe. She had an incredible role in the movie Boogie Nights and in The Big Lebowski. She was in The Fugitive, The Lost World, Jurassic Park, and so many more. We're going to be seeing her again in 1999 for... I cannot wait for this film. Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia, which is going to be three hours. I'm dreading how long the editing on that is going to be for this episode because it's going to be ridiculous. But
1: I've never seen Magnolia. Neither so have, have I. I am fucking pumped, dude. Neither
0: am I. I'm excited to see this movie. Um, but after this, I mean, her career has not slowed down at all. She's done so much. She was in Hannibal, Crazy Stupid Love, The Kids Are All Right, The Hours, Children of Men, Still Alice, which I believe she won an Academy Award for, The Hunger Games, Mocking Jay Parts 1 and 2, and Kingsman, The Golden Circle. She's also had so numerous- we've
1: got two Kingsman people here.
0: Yes. So wow. she's also had numerous appearances on the stage and television, but we'd seriously be here all day if we went through her entire filmography. So long story short, she's a boss. She's awesome. Good for you. Um there were some other choices as, as we brought up on shows in the past there are several characters who will, were kind of interested to see who their other choices were as far as casting and there were a few other people that were lined up for this role um uh, miranda richardson who was in the crying game and sleepy hollow and kristen scott thomas who is in the english patient and four weddings and a Funeral were both considered for the role of Sarah Miles. But things changed when Julianne Moore personally wrote a letter to Neil Jordan and straight up just asked him for a part in the film. And her method worked... one way to do it. And her method worked because she was offered a role in the film. Jordan later said that Julianne Moore blew him away with the audition that she did. And... His decision more than paid off when Moore was nominated that year for Best Actress in the Academy Award and the Golden Globes. So I think
1: this says something about how good Julianne Moore is because she beat out two actual English women for a role as an English woman in a movie about 1940s England. So that's pretty good.
0: Yeah, and scored an Academy Award nomination for it. So good job. Okay, next up.
1: We have Stephen Ray, who plays Henry Miles, and he is fucking amazing in this movie. It's like, I think he has one of the harder jobs in the movie. He's got like a super, just like underrated role. He's great. But before the end of the affair, his acting career began all the way back in the 60s with appearances in theater and TV roles in London and the UK. His first film appearance was in 1970s Cry of the Banshee, and he went on to make appearances in films like The Crying Game and Interview with a Vampire. Does those sound familiar? Because we just talked about him a moment ago as well. Both of those were also Neil Jordan pictures. So there you go. He also appeared in a number of other 1999 films, including In Dreams, which is terrible, (laughs) Guinevere, I Could Read the Sky, and The Life Before This. After 1999, his filmography continues to be ridiculous, and he's been keeping busy appearing in film and TV A bunch of times uh film wise he's most notably appeared in v for vendetta and underworld awakening as well as some other similar movies um he's probably neil jordan's favorite actor i have to say uh and i say that because he's appeared in eight or sorry i say that because before the end of the affair he appeared in eight out of jordan's previous 10 movies so that's a lot of fucking movies i'd say so and when they ask neil jordan about this they're like why do you keep casting this motherfucker He goes, well, I owe him an awful lot of money from a bet years ago. And he gave that as his reason for casting him over and over again. But when they said, okay, what's the real reason why you picked Ray for this role? Jordan said, quote, I needed a strong and incredibly subtle actor for that. It's not an attractive part. Men don't like to play a man who can't give his wife an orgasm. I wanted him to emerge with a dignity that is surprising. And I... I would say that he does. I think he he approaches this role in a very, very subtle and dignified way. I agree. I appreciate it. Um, The producer of the movie, Wooly, um, also notes that this role was a challenge. He said it was a real challenge for Steven, but he manages to portray Henry sympathetically without putting the other characters in a bad light. And I think that's really important, too, because the way that he played Henry could have made Bendrix and Sarah's characters look like real assholes. But he does it in a way that, like, you still feel for everybody.
0: Yeah, this is, I think his role is one of the most complex roles in the entire film. I've seen, and we've all seen a lot of movies or TV shows where someone's having an affair and then it's very cut and dry who the good and the bad characters are. But this is interesting because it shows all of them with good and bad traits. And it's almost like yeah. you're almost left talking about, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy in the scenario and it,
1: everybody's it, kind of at fault yeah you know what i mean it's like there's some equal weight placed on everybody's shoulders for what happens in this movie
0: yeah and for any talking points that can be kept after this movie has been watched i think that's one of the most interesting ones and in that it that that relationship and that triangle of people alone is cause for a good deal of discussion and thinking like well, was this character right? Was this, did this person do this? What do you think? And so on and so forth.
1: Hard agree, dude. Yeah. Hard agree. So next, we got up next?
0: Next up, we have Ian Hart as Mr. Parkus. Before 1999, he, be, he first began appearing in film and television in the early 1980s, like Michael Collins in 1996, The Butcher Boy in 1997, another Neil Jordan flick, and the Channel 4 miniseries One Summer in 1983. After this... We have another Slytherin in this movie. We should note that... Is he a Slytherin, though? Ah, we don't... I I, I think he's a Hufflepuff. ah, He's supported by... He supports Voldy, so I feel like he automatically is a Slytherin. But anyway...
1: Well, hold on a second. He's a Ravenclaw. Really? Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, we have another harry potter character after 1999 he played professor Quirrell slash voldemort in harry potter and the sorcerer's stone he was in Finding neverland and he's made appearances in television shows such as agents of shield my mad fat diary the bridge boardwalk empire elementary vinyl and knots and crosses most recently he appeared in a film called escape from pretoria which was released one week before the worldwide pandemic lockdown began oh, no and the film ironically stars his old buddy Harry Potter Daniel Radcliffe before the end of the affair his work had primarily been in independent films according to hart this taught him how to do without the creature comforts afforded a large budget film afforded to a larger budget film when comparing his experiences on earlier films to his experiences on The End of the Affair, he said, quote, doing bigger budget films means having choices rather than choices being made for you born out of necessity or poverty, he said. The fact that you don't have to get dressed in a toilet, have a bus that used to be an ice cream van, or one guy with a hose to make it rain instead of a street full of <laughs> rain machines, it gives you a choice.
1: <laughs> That's kind of humbling, you know? I'd say he's, so. He's coming from these tiny movies, and he's working with these big actors, and he's arguably the best character in this movie. Yeah. I, I loved this guy. Yeah. I thought he's... he was fucking stellar. You know who else was pretty good was his son, who was played by Sam Bold, and his, uh-huh. his, yeah, his character's name was Lancelot Parkus, or Lance Parkus, and it's funny, because he was named after Lancelot for some bold reason. But then they find out in the movie that he's actually named after the wrong Knight of the Round Table. So there you go. Hmm. Before the end of the affair, he had literally one acting role, and it was in a movie called Hollow Reed in 1996. After the end of the affair, he appeared in the TV series Urban Gothic in 2001. And that's it nothing else. According wow. to IMDb, he's become an editor, and he's got 11 editing credits to his name through 2019 on various short films and TV documentaries. But he's not acting anymore.
0: No. But good so, for him. Editing is fine. Yeah, he's still Editing doing is something, a good career.
1: Right? Yeah. So this is gonna get strange for a moment, Jared, because I was looking for some casting stories about Sam Bold, and I came across something very weird. Okay. And that was a website called boyactors.org.uk.
0: I feel this is going in a very bad direction, but keep when going. I saw
1: that name, I also felt that way. This is the about us blurb from boyactors.org.uk quote ba they shortened it ba is a database of movies starring boy actors an image gallery and discussion forum members can add their own movie reviews and or give their own ratings they're not clear on whether they're rating the movies or the boy actors To post a review or give a rating, you must first register with the forum, and the forum is capitalized. Oh my god. So, this shit is creepy, dude, and the website is bizarre. On their contact page, there's a simple contact form, but there's a very clear disclaimer at the top, and it says, quote, Note that we cannot put you in contact with any of the current or former boy actors. We cannot arrange for autographs or photos, (laughs) end quote. There's also a page with external links, and one of the websites that you can go to is called Boys on Your Screen, and it's described as Sensitive Stevens Boy Movie Discussion Forum.
0: So what the fuck am I looking at, Jared? Andrew, I have something to tell you. My name is Chris Hansen and you're on film for something called Hanson versus Predator. We have cameras there, <laughs> there, and there. So if Dude. there's anything you'd like to say before you're free to go, you may say it. I've been, I've, I've been thinking of that joke since you sent this to it's, me. It's very good. Yeah, it's really, really weird.
1: I, I feel that there is something very nefarious going on with this website. And I feel like we could do an entire like, investigative podcast series on this shit. So I'm going to table it for now. But I feel like, I feel like I have to like report this to
0: somebody. Well, when Chris Hansen gets done taking down Davi Vanity and that YouTuber Onision, then we can send him this one, and maybe it okay. can be an, okay. another series. Because I'm
1: I'm uncomfortable about this.
0: I'm uncomfortable of you reading it. Yes, it's very very weird. Um, like yeah. Anyway,
1: let's 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 just move on down the road here so who's next jared
0: next up we just have one other actor to talk about it for this film and it's another harry potter person jason isaacs who plays this is
1: what happens when you make a british movie (laughs) there's only so many of them you can pick from
0: i remember when i was a kid and i went to go see harry potter and the sorcerer's stone we walked out of the theater all my parents kept talking about they were like yeah the movie was good but like Literally, everybody from Britain is in this movie, and I didn't understand that until years later. Yeah. But then it's like Maggie Smith, Robbie Coltrane, Alan Rickman, who my dad knew from Die Hard, Richard Harris, and then Michael Gambon. Like, all pretty yeah. much it's considered if you're an adult actor in England and you have some semblance of a career, you're gonna be in Harry Potter doing stuff. That's something. how it worked <laughs> out,
1: man. It's, it's a tiny island, and there's only so many people
0: there. So Jason Isaacs plays fathered Richard Smythe and before this movie he first began appearing in a number of television series and television movies including Capital City in 1989 and The Heroic Legend of Arslan. Before this film he appeared in films like Dragonheart, Event Horizon, and Armageddon.
1: Okay. So some tiny little movies.
0: Yeah. So he had obviously a bigger career in overseas but then started to get into some of the blockbuster ones um, here in America. And after that I mean, his fate was sealed. He became Lucius Malfoy in the Harry Potter series, who I think was in every movie after the second one. Um, since 1999, he's appeared in The Patriot, Black Hawk Down, Resident Evil, Peter Pan, where he plays both Mister Darling and Captain Hook. It's
1: kind and of a cool. That's coo- kind of an interesting. It's twist. kind of a cool like adaptation. A Wizard of Oz sort of thing.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a cool adaptation of the movie. It's kind of weird, a little bit darker. Um, I haven't seen it in years, but I wonder if it still holds up. Uh, he was in Cars 2, Fury, and Scoob. And I just like I just saying... that last week. Oh, was it good? Yeah, it was great. Cool. Yeah, so he was in that. And so he's also appeared in tons of television shows, including The West Wing, Avatar The Last Airbender, The State Within, Brotherhood, Star Wars Rebels, Star Trek Discovery, and The OA.
1: So he has a he fun He dipped career. into Star Wars and Star Trek, huh?
0: And Harry Potter. That's, cr- That's some
1: double dippage there.
0: And Avatar, which is kind of awesome, so... He's got his foot in all these little universes. The only other two actors we want to just give an honorable mention to are James Bullum as Mr. Savage and Deborah Findlay as Miss Smythe. And with that covered, that's our cast for this week. And that leaves us with nothing to do but go on and talk about how this damn thing was filmed.
1: Filming began on February 15th, 1999. And it ended on April 30th, 1999. It's pretty quick. So there you go. Yeah, pretty fast. Um, There were a shitload of filming locations, considering how short of a time they filmed in. And they were all in the UK. And there were actually really only like 11. But still, that's like, it feels like
0: a lot. It's a lot.
1: So um, let's dive in a little bit into some of these. Let's do it. Of course, we've got London, England. And we could stop there. But that's not our job, goddammit. Our Mm -mm. job is to get specific. So we're going to dive into some specifics. So, the first of these places is Kensal Green Cemetery on Harrow Road in Kensal Green, London. And this is where they filmed Sarah's funeral scene. So, spoiler alert, if you weren't listening at the beginning and you (laughs) haven't seen the movie, she fucking croaks, (laughs) alright? If you like the cemetery and you want to see more of it for some reason, you can find it in the gloriously tasteless Vincent Price horror comedy called Theater of Blood. So... Check it out.
0: Um, there's also the Maida Val Underground Station. British people don't come for me, please. Just correct me if I'm wrong. Um and this it's was
1: spelled just like a local hardcore band called Maida was back in the day.
0: I'll pronounce it like that. Maida vale. Do you remember Maida? No, I don't.
1: They were fucking dope, dude. Anyway.
0: The next location was Maida Vale Underground Station in Maida Vale, London. This is the underground station where Sarah takes Lance and kisses him on his big-ass birthmark. The station has been left largely unmodernized, making another good option for a period piece. The staircase leads to the Bakerloo Line, and the exterior of the station also serves as the imaginary Westbourne Oak Station in the 2014 film Paddington.
1: That's another one where if you're British, you're connected to Paddington somehow, whether you like it or not. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Up next, we have the Prince Alfred Bar at 5A Formosa Street in Maida London. And this is the ornate carved wood and etched glass bar where Bendrix gets evidence of the supposed intimacy from private detective Parkus. The bar is perfect for a period piece because it still has its original snob screens. And if you're wondering what the fuck a snob screen is, you're probably not alone. So I'll tell you. These snob screens are basically leftover relics from an earlier age when bar patrons were divided up by class and gender and so each class had its own outdoor entrance but people could access the various other bars from inside using these like basically dog doors between rooms and they were mainly intended for the use of like bar staff and cleaners and shit but if you wanted to mingle with the lower classes you could sneak through the little doggy door and do that so that's what a snob screen is uh, the bar has also appeared in Bee Monkey*, *Killing Me Softly*, and *King Ralph*, which is a movie where John Goodman inherits the British throne. So I kind of want to watch that one.
0: I'm ki- I'm kind of interested to watch that too. I love John Goodman. Um, we also have the Sheraton Park Lane Hotel in I love this word Piccadilly, London. Uh, The glittering Art Deco bar of the Sheraton Park Lane Hotel is one of a couple of locations that Neil Jordan revisited from his previous films. This location is used for the Café Royale in The End of the Affair, and it was formerly seen in Jordan's Mona Lisa. It's also been in Maid of Honor, The Golden Compass, and Revolver. You can even see the hotel's luxurious toilets in Paul McGugan's Gangster Number 1.
1: So, up next, we have the Church of St. Mary Magdalene at Rowington Close in Paddington, London. And this is the super pretty church where Sarah and Bendricks discuss, wait for it, the end of their affair. Ah, and the same it. church is used for the memorial service in the Constant Gardener, which also stars Ray Fiennes. Its exterior can be seen in the 1949 British classic, The Blue Lamp, as well as in a movie called Secret Ceremony
0: next up we've got priory church of saint bartholomew the great in west smithfield london man we're covering all the churches here um this is the other super pretty church where Parkus and his sons spy on sarah interestingly saint bartholomew's is london's oldest surviving church it was founded in 1123 and has been in continuous use since at least 1143 the church Jesus. has been in a shitload of movies, so you might recognize it from Four Weddings and a Funeral, Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes, Shakespeare in Love, Elizabeth the Golden Age, or Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves.
1: Good old Kevin Costner. Mm-hmm. Because when I think of England, I think of Kevin Costner. <laughs> Uh, up next, we've got Middleton Square in London. Filming took place on both ends of Middleton Square. Father Smythe's house is located on the west side of the square at Inglebert Street, which is an adorable name. <laughs> and there's normally these like really elegant-looking terraces there that have been around since 1827. And in the movie, they make them look all weedy and grubby and shitty. But this is like a really, really expensive place to live, so they like actually uglied them up for the movie. <laughs> and then um, the other side of the square is where the Anglican Gothic Uh, church for St. Mark's is. And that's where Sarah finds Lancelot asleep in the doorway before she takes him down to the subway station and kisses him on the birthmark.
0: And we've also got the Phoenix Cinema at 52 High Road, East Finchley, London. This is another location that was previously used by Neil Jordan. This is the old movie theater where Bendrix follows Sarah out into the road. This is the UK's oldest purpose-built cinema in continuous use previously it served as the american picture house visited by brad pitt and neil jordan's interview with the vampire
1: excellent so that covers all the london stuff but we've got a couple more locations around the uk to talk about too yeah. one of those is brighton which is in east sussex and i've been to brighton and it's amazing nice it's super pretty so i've actually been to the exact pier that they were at in this movie Cool. I was very sick to my stomach that day, so I'm familiar with the bathrooms at the Brighton
0: Not cool. No,
1: but (laughs) anyway, uh, Maurice and Sarah had a better time in Brighton than I did. And they spent a weekend at the Seaside Resort right next to the pier that also appears in Graham Greene's Brighton Rock. Uh, They also visited a very famous kind of mock Chinese-style royal pavilion, which has a little bit of an interesting history. So I'm going to go into that. In the 1780s, the south coast fishing town of Brighton was being developed into a retreat for the rich and famous of England. And around the same time, George, the Prince of Wales, who was known for being kind of like this over-the-top, fun-loving dude and the son of King George III, was Hmm. living in Brighton. So he was basically like the Billy Madison of English royalty, doing his thing fucking (laughs) around. And he decided to expand his modest-looking little house into, like, this massive villa, which became known as the Marine Pavilion. And if you know your British history... Or if you've seen Nicholas Heitner's film of Alan Bennett's The Madness of King George, you'll know that around this time, George III wasn't doing so hot mentally. And soon he became incapable of acting as monarch. At that point, George, Prince of Wales, became Prince Regent. And after that, he commissioned this really famous British architect called John Nash to transform his pavilion into a very un-British, very exotic palace complete with Chinese furniture and hand-painted wallpaper. So he basically took his boring little British abode and turned it into this crazy, like, faux Chinese palace. Hmm. And the pavilion is in this movie, but it's also appeared in a bunch of others, including the 1995 Ian McKellen version of Richard III and the Barbra Streisand musical. On a clear day, you can see forever.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So there you go. And we've also got Q Green in this is and this is a mouthful in Q Richmond, Surrey, England, United Kingdom.
1: Jesus Christ, their <laughs> envelopes must be a disaster over I swear, over
0: there. it must be. I mean, at this point, I feel like they should just have a stamp. Just right. with all of it already written out. Q Green was used in several shots, including the scene where the V1 bomb hits a house in the background, the scene where Maurice chases after Sarah's cab, and as the exterior for Maurice's house. And finally, there's always old reliable, which we've talked about numerous times on the show, Shepardin Studios in England.
1: Yep, yeah, and I tried to find out some specifics on this, like what soundstage did they use, for example. If you go to the Shepperton Studios website, the page for The End of the Affair doesn't even have an actual picture of The End of the Affair. It just has like a stock photo of a film reel, and it's like, yeah, they made that here, so what? Yikes. So, yeah, there's not much info about it. And that's a good transition into our production stories, Jared, because there's not a hell of a lot of info about these either. No. There's really not much about this movie at all, and it's difficult for a couple reasons. One, there's another movie called The Same Thing, and that makes it a little bit challenging to find information. Two, there was a show called The Affair, and that show has ended. And so when you Google the end of The Affair, all the articles you get are about the end of that show called The Affair. So I was (laughs) dipping into page five, six, and even seven of Google trying to find shit for this. So what we have is what there is. Yeah.
0: Unless we get somebody to talk about, like, come on, who was in the movie, Wraith, Julianne. Please, come well, on the show.
1: Well, you know, I would tell you that I had a way to get a hold of Sam Bold, but they cannot contact the boy actors. So I don't have a way to get <laughs> well a hold played. of him, unfortunately. Well
0: played. Um, yeah, so there really isn't a ton about this movie, but there's one thing that... I'm sure you'll remember about this movie if you've watched it. And one thing that we're going to discuss in terms of the limited information that we found. There is a whole lot of fucking going on in this movie. A whole lot of fucking. I texted Andrew cuz he watched the movie before I did. And I will never forget what he sent me. He said I said he said I found the movie and I'm watching and I was like, "Oh cool, how is it?" he said, "It's weird. It's almost like a softcore porn." I don't really know what to think of it yet. I'll update you later.
1: <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I don't think I did update you later, but it, it just, it continues to feel like that. And then it ends. Oh, I hit, I smacked my microphone. Hold on. It continues to feel like that. And then it ends. Yeah. So that's pretty much what it is.
0: Yeah. So this is a chance that we're going to take to talk about some of this material in film because we haven't really been able to talk about that. But when it comes to sex That's in the right. movies, we're going to talk
1: about sex.
0: Yeah. So when it comes to sex in the movies, we've come a long way since the first on-screen kiss was shown in an appropriately named clip called "The Kiss" from nineteen eighty from eighteen ninety-six.
1: And people were pissed about that shit too. Yeah. They were like, "This is some raunchy shit. Yeah. I don't want to see that smut at the picture shows."
0: Yeah. And while The End of the Affair isn't overly raunchy or kinky or anything crazy like that, sex is definitely at the forefront of this movie. And if you, basically, if you missed out on the action, we're going to give you a full rundown of all the stuff that you missed. Um, now, the description we're about to give you comes from kidsinmind.com.
1: Which again, when you think of sex, the first website you think of is kidsinmind.com. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Which is a there's horrible irony and uh, shit with this. But this is a website that quote provides parents and other adults with objective and complete information about a film's content so that they can decide based on their own value system whether they should watch a movie with or without their kids or at all. And I think there's nothing that else that we need to say other than this is kind that this is kind of hilarious. Because no,
1: dude, It's it's so funny. It's so funny.
0: Because somehow all the shit sounds way more erotic written down than it does in the actual movie. Like there's a number of sex scenes in this movie, but they each last for maybe a few seconds each. But then these descriptions, I had to look at those websites when I was uh, younger because I really wanted to see movies that my parents weren't comfortable with me seeing. So my mom would say like, go on to like whatever blog is on it was like Yahoo or so, I forget where it was. But they would like... And it would do descriptions like this. And then based off of that, it would be like, nah, you can't see it. Without further ado, here's the description about the end of the affairs sexual content from kids-in-mind.com.
1: Quote, We see several kissing scenes and four sex scenes. In one extended scene, a man puts his hand up a woman's skirt and rubs her clothed breast. Then the two fondle, grope, and passionately undress each other before falling on a bed and having intercourse with moaning. We see a few close-ups of the man's bare buttocks. In one, the woman's hand is squeezing his buttocks and glimpse his pubic hair. In another scene, they sit upright on a bed and we see lots of thrusting, a few shots of her bare breasts, and hear her moaning. We also see the couple in bed, naked from the waist up, post-coitus. In two other scenes, we see them kissing passionately in bed and see their bodies thrusting under the covers. In one, we see a close-up of her bare breast, and in the other, we see part of her bare buttocks. We see a brief shot of a woman's bare breast as she gets dressed.
0: See, I feel like... uh, Another thing that I wanted to say about this when I had to look at, like, the description websites to lay it out, you'd see... Obviously, that description was very specific. When it's you,
1: very graphic.
0: And it's very graphic. And then when you watch the movie, it's like, oh, there's a group. Wait, that scene lasted for like two seconds. Like you barely It's saw not it. that bad. It's not movie. that bad at all. <laughs> it, and the funny thing to me
1: is like, so I was reading this and I'm thinking to myself, okay, this website claims to be a way for parents to read about what their kids should and should not watch. But I think there's another level to this where it's like almost kind of trying to be erotic like as its own thing. It's very strange. Like I picture a bunch of horny parents watching movies specifically looking for sex scenes and then writing up these very detailed descriptions for other horny parents to go read In like an innocent venue and that cracks me the fuck up
0: quite possibly i mean it wouldn't surprise me um i
1: think it's hilarious
0: this is a little funny aside but the website itself actually acknowledges how oddly specific their write-ups can get in their about us section quote if one reads our reviews one will often find many instances where our descriptions are so detailed they seem absurd. But we'd rather (laughs) err on the side of comprehensiveness. And And I have something to say about that. Because say that a teenager or a kid who's like 10 or 11 wants to see a movie and their parents say, Okay, well, let me look into this and do this thing, or go and read this review and do this, and then come and bring me some information about it so I can make a better decision. Or I'll go find some more information about a better decision. Yeah, this decision. is
1: not intended for children to be reading and but recording But children, back to their parents. but
0: children can access it and they can look at it because it's it's the same thing as perfect example. When I was when I was a, a teenager, I really wanted to convince my mom to let me listen to American Idiot. I really wanted to listen to Green Day. And she said, I will think about it. I don't know if I, because the song was Billy Joe sang, the song was American Idiot. And the, the lines were the subliminal mind, fuck America. And maybe I'm the faggot America. Those two lines were, and obviously censored on the radio, but I went and looked up online what they were. In fact, I then went and looked up the entire album, and I read all of the lyrics. I knew what they were, and my mom said, I don't want you to listening to this. But it's also kind of like, okay, but I can also go and just read it. So you're
1: like, yeah, I already know. you're you're, You're
0: not really hiding anything from me. And I don't know. It's weird. Like it's. You don't get access to the real thing, but you almost get access to something that gives you as much detail, possibly even more detail than if you were actually, like, which one is almost like, if we're talking about things that are dangerous to the youth of America or whatever, isn't the description almost a little bit more on par with the, I I don't know. I think it's
1: worse. I, I would not have described these scenes in this graphic of a way if I were to write a review that's why i think it's hilarious and i love that they acknowledge that it's absurd because the first thing i thought when i read this is like this is absurd yeah and then i read there about me and they're like yeah we know
0: yeah it's it's very strange um it's hilarious
1: i want to read more of them
0: yeah i'd be very interested Uh, maybe we'll find some and we'll we'll, maybe that can be a thing from here on out with some of these shows like we can find the descriptions (laughs) um i'll make a note of that Sex scenes like the ones in the end of the affair Are usually at least a little awkward for actors If not downright uncomfortable And that makes sense Because there's a ton of people around on the set You may think that you just see the two people And maybe if your mind's there like Oh, the director and the cinematographer guiding the scene, but no, there's lighting people, there's set designers, there's crafts, like there's all sorts of shit. Oh yeah,
1: the janitors walking by sweeping up the the candy wrappers.
0: Yeah, so most of those people are either staring at you, pointing a camera at you, or worst of all, telling you how you should be doing better. And you're usually yeah. You're usually at least semi-nude, if not completely naked, and so is your co-star. And then you have to mash all your parts together with someone you probably (laughs) barely knew or someone you knew all too well, whether you enjoy their company or not. So it's pretty weird. And for that reason, most actors are usually pretty shy about the experience. In other words, they don't typically have favorite sex scenes. But Ray Fiennes isn't most actors. While appearing on Watch What Happens Live recently, host Andy Cohen asked the actor about his favorite love scenes that he performed in. And Ray Fiennes had an answer ready to go.
1: What was the love scene that you shot that was your favorite to shoot?
0: Um, Well, there's a number of them. (laughs) <laughs> um, but I like making love to Kristen Scott Thomas in the English patient. Yes. Yeah, and Julianne Moore in the end of the affair. Yes. And with Rachel Weiss in the constant gardener. Just, three that, just three that come to mind. Just three that come
1: to mind. Wow. So he, he's got his full, uh, he had his, his full answer, ready to go. list written down.
0: Yeah. So.
1: Wow. Rafe.
0: Yeah. But sex on, scenes man. aren't just hard for actors.
1: Yeah, they're, they're difficult for the filmmakers, too. And as one reviewer noted, one thing that was incredibly hard to do in the movies, particularly during the late 90s, was to film sex scenes that were frankly erotic without seeming exploitative or silly. And Neil Jordan seemed to agree with that sentiment, and he even shed some additional light on the observation. So this movie is chock full of love scenes that by the late 90s standards were unusually straightforward. So how did the end of the affair break Hollywood's mold here? Well... They made the movie outside of Hollywood, and according to Neil Jordan, it's no coincidence that this film was produced independently in the UK, and therefore wholly outside the Hollywood studio system. And here's what he had to say about it. Quote, the End of the Affair is one of the most frankly erotic books ever written. I wanted to make my film sex scenes as truly as the book does. When I see sex scenes between Hollywood actors, they're always terribly violent. They're always shoving each other's head against the wall or ripping up a table full of crockery and throwing the girl (laughs) down. I saw the Thomas Crown affair and they were literally making love while climbing the stairs. I don't know anybody who behaves like that. The way that they make love in this picture is, I think, closer to what people actually do. I think they do that in Hollywood movies because they're afraid of intimacy. They're afraid of showing it and they're worried about what the rating will be. Maybe that's become their language for sex, the violent stuff. And we're going to go a little bit deeper into this whole rating Hollywood system thing later, but I think it's worth pausing here for a minute to talk about how this perceived difference between Hollywood style sex scenes and those in other movies affects the industry. Cause I, I think it's pretty interesting. Like I never really thought about that before, Yeah. but there is a lot of very, like the American version of passion is very, very tied into like aggression and violence. And I think that's interesting that that's more acceptable from a rating perspective than something that's a little bit softer and more intimate, like the end of the affair is.
0: So what's funny is that in over in Europe and in the UK, they're very lenient about scenes like that, that are sexual, not necessarily aggressive, but just sexual. And they're more up in arms about violence. Whereas here it's the complete opposite. We're so, we want to be so conservative about sex and, nudity and this and that but we'll let somebody get their head blown off in five to 20 different ways possible and have it shown as graphically as possible i think the first time i ever was kind of like oh this is weird was in mission impossible ghost protocol i think that's the name of it it was a pg-13 movie and a guy got a headshot like you see the bullet exit his brain Oh, yeah. And it splatters. And I was like, holy shit. I didn't know you could show that in a PG 13 movie. But the second you show, like, somebody getting dressed and you see their breasts for like a second, it gets an R rating. And it's really interesting, man. It's really weird. So the fact that you say that that's a really poignant observation in the fact that aggression and sex are tied together in those movies to give them those ratings. And I think that it doesn't shock me all that much though because violence is so much more accepted here in the United States and in films. Whereas, and so Hollywood kind of like those bigger picture movies can work that into their scenes. Almost, it's almost instinctual. Like it's just kind of accepted over here. And it's
1: weird. I've never thought about the relationship between those two things until researching for this movie. I mean, look at
0: Mr. and Mrs. Smith with Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. The whole, it's like, I think if I remember correctly, the sex scene is them like aggressively trying to have sex with each other while trying to kill each other. Like- That's true. If that is not, if that's not America, like I don't know, or American Hollywood film, I don't know what is. Wow.
1: That's a good point. We're fucked up over here, guys.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think we really are.
1: All right. So, Jared, I could talk about fucking all day long, but we have some other things that we need to talk about, too. So maybe we should move on to the next subject. What do you think?
0: So I, I agree. So there's so while we were talking about. This is really our first opportunity to talk about love scenes and films and how they're done and how they're perceived. This is one of our first opportunities to talk about a period piece. And one of the hallmarks of any period piece film is the costumes that are made. So let's take a moment to clarify what a period piece is. And I'm not joking. I saw a few people get mad on Twitter when they thought period piece was being used as a sexist term to describe Little Women when it came out this last year. No, yeah. that is not what people, it means.
1: There were people who thought because women have periods and Little Women is about women that period piece was an insult to the movie.
0: Definitely not
1: because they didn't understand what a period piece was. So hopefully nobody's having that level of confusion here, but if anybody is, we're gonna explain it just a little bit for you.
0: So from a dictionary standpoint, so we're all aware of this, a period piece, AKA historical drama is an object or work that is set in or strongly reminiscent of an earlier historical period. And going off of that definition, The End of the Affair is certainly a period piece about the UK in the 1940s. Pride and Prejudice is a period piece about a different time in uh, in history. Fiction, but based off of something real. Star Wars is a period piece because we all know that happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Things like that. <laughs> That's
1: stretching it just a smidge. I
0: don't think so. It's real. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Okay. But hold up for a second. As it turns out, there's some contention among a certain group of people who might think this movie falls into a certain lesser category known as costume dramas. Now, apparently, the costume drama is sometimes separated as a subgenre of historical dramas that focus specifically on romance and relationships in, quote, sumptuous surroundings. Ooh, sumptuous. I like that word. Some critics have brushed these costume dramas off as being trivial compared to other historical dramas that explore more serious themes. Other critics, though, defend costume dramas, and some even argue that costume dramas are disparaged because they are a genre directed towards women. So, anyway, we started this whole segment with the goal of talking about the costumes in this movie, so maybe we should get into that. Um, Yeah, might be about time. The costumes in this movie aren't the flashiest costumes in the world, but hey, people in the UK weren't exactly walking around dressed like L M F A O during World War II. But that would be (laughs) something. What if they were, though? That would be something. What
1: if they were? That'd be kind of fun.
0: In fact, I think it's the subtlety of the costumes that makes them so appropriate for the period. This next-level attention to period-piece detail was handled by Sandy Powell, who began her career working with Neil Jordan and has proven herself to be a fucking boss when it comes to costume design. Oh, yeah, dude. Over the course of her career, she's been nominated for 13 Oscars for either Best Costume Design or Best Achievement in Costume Design. Of these nominations, she's had three wins Shakespeare in Love in 1998, The Aviator in 2004, and The Young Victoria in 2009. She's also been nominated for 15 BAFTAs, including one for The End of the Affair. Of her BAFTA nominations, she ended up with three wins. Velvet Goldmine in 1998, The Young Victoria in 2009, and The Favourite in 2018. Powell is steadfast in her belief that she is there to serve the director's vision. She says, quote, When first meeting with the filmmaker, it's best to let them do the talking. It's their creative vision. Plus, I don't want them to get tied to early ideas I have that, more often than not, I'll want to change.
1: I like that little turd because she tries to make it sound like, oh yeah, it's all about what the director wants. And she's like, just kidding though, I didn't really want to get my way and I don't <laughs> want them to like go with some shitty idea I have in the first five minutes. So, so this is fantastic. Yeah.
0: So this is important to note because you have to remember that a costume designer does more than just decide what a character is going to be wearing. It's her job to think about how those costumes can enhance the character's personality or reflect a time period or a social status. They put a lot of thought to the color, tone, and texture as well. In other words, a costume designer's choice can have a massive impact on how the story is told, not just how it looks. That's why it's so important for costume designers and directors to work in lockstep with another. But Powell's desire to serve the director's vision doesn't mean she isn't always looking for other ways to bring her own flair to the movie she works on. Kind of like what we just said a little earlier. She says, quote, I try to push the boundaries, whether it's new fabrics and materials for inventing new ways of making something. Each film is different and I'm always interested in learning. Unless, of course, the film requires it, I'm not interested in exact replica of the period. I look at the period, how it should be, how it could be, and then I do my own version. And I think that's this unique balance that makes the end of the affair seem somehow both authentic and timeless. It's also why Powell consistently gets so much recognition come award season.
1: Yeah, dude, I think she does a... a, I mean, obviously, she's been recognized by every award that there is, really. But I think she does a fucking amazing job. Like... The costumes in this movie i just feel like i'm there it all feels 100 percent down to the button accurate
0: yeah like i one of the films that she was noted for I, um the aviator like holy shit the attention to detail in that movie is I- immaculate um not just with the i mean yes the set design is a huge part of it and the directing and all of that but the costumes in that movie are, like, in every phase of Howard Hughes' life that's depicted are just spot on. And they 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 do such a great job of putting you there.
1: I also appreciate that she's down to, like, kind of branch out from 100% historical accuracy. You know what I mean? Like, she keeps it consistent within the movie, but she also stylizes it just enough that it kind of gives the movie its own unique flair. Yeah. I think that's awesome. Because you can get held down in trying to make it look exactly like it would have at the time. And that's a little bit boring.
0: Yeah, and it's I was going to say it might take the audience even a little bit out of it sometimes because they'll go, oh, that's a little bit too weird. I don't really like the way that that looks. And they're going to be focused on that. Whereas if you make it as close to the time period as possible but give it something that people will identify with, then it keeps you in the story. So I think that's awesome.
1: So, yeah, I mean, she fucking nailed it, dude.
0: But the costumes are only one part of the equation for getting the tone of this movie right. What are some of the other parts of this that are important?
1: The other thing that's really important here is that they paid very careful attention to lighting, textures, movement, and focus. So, camera stuff, basically. And I mentioned this in my rundown. There's a lot of soft focus, soap opera kind of shit going on in this movie, which is really not my favorite thing in the world. But... I understand why they did it, and I'm going to try to explain it to all of y'all as well. So, you ready?
0: Yep, let's do it. Cool.
1: If you've seen the movie, you likely noticed that lighting and cinematography played a big role in setting the scene for Bendrix and Sarah's affair. Nearly every surface in the movie seems to kind of gleam with light, and many of the shots have a sort of soft focusy effect. Like I said, because of this, the actors seem to almost kind of like float through the scenes and this effect helps us to understand that we're looking at memories and it even gives the impression that those memories are most likely biased and sanitized to some extent right so it that sort of like -like, cloud-like cloud-like haze is what shows you that you're not in reality at the present moment Mm -hmm. right it indicates that you're you're in the past in some way And then as Sarah and Henry's affair becomes more intense, the details in the movie start to become sharper and the scenes kind of open up. You start to see more stuff and the cameras start to catch more, like the details of their skin and the fabric and their body parts, particularly that Voldemort ass, if you know what I'm saying, (laughs) as well as things like furniture. And we know we are glimpsing like way more intimate, detailed memories. And the effect is definitely cinematic. Um, And it's a really cool accomplishment in adapting a book that was very literary right because we talked about this a little bit earlier the book takes place very much inside their heads and the movie obviously cannot do that because movies have to be something you can see and so the way that they capture the detail but then also use the lighting to create that like i'm in your head kind of vibe is really effective even if i don't personally like it that much i definitely think it works yeah so because of this attention to detail many critics have lauded the end of the affair for its striking technical credits including cinematographer roger pratt's carefully modulated lensing and anthony pratt's authentic production design and by the way these two Pratts not related to each other so what are the odds of that okay um i don't think either of them's related to chris i was about to say a bunch of fucking Pratts running around making movies and none of them are related to each other At the time that the movie came out, Roger and Anthony were considered two of the best in the business, and their partnership with Neil Jordan seemed like a natural one. Jordan had a reputation for meticulously controlling the technical aspects of the filmmaking process, which some directors do, some directors don't. Some cinematographers like it when the directors do that, and some of them just want them to back the fuck off. But these three all seemed to kind of agree with each other, and they were all on board with the process. And Jordan said of his own process, quote, I prepare everything. All the lighting situations, all the camera moves, prepare as much as I possibly can. And if you were that prepared, you create a space where the actors can function better. So this kind of ties into that idea of the haunting and the, the way they played the music on set and the sounds on set. And it's all about how are you going to get a better performance out of the actors? So Jordan and the two Pratts sat down together and talked about how they plan to achieve the intense, almost dreamlike vibe in the movie. And they started by thinking about how light was actually used during world war ii in the uk and i think this is really fucking cool too because it gets kind of like historical and nerdy for a minute and i like to get historical and nerdy so according to roger pratt the 40s were a time of light deprivation and here's what he said about it quote i was born in 1947 so what i remember is a bit after the war we used to have one light on in the middle of the room and that was about it people would switch off lights quickly to save money when you went into a room, you would turn the lights on there, but everywhere else, they were off. And then, of course, there was the war effort in 1939 through 1945 when it was illegal to show a light through the window. Huh. And so they, they looked at these details of how people actually were living back then, and then they tried to capture that in the movie to give a sense of authenticity to the period piece. Um, the filmmakers were super intrigued by all of that information, and in many ways, the concept of light deprivation and intensity reflected the themes of the movie, right? Because it's all about like personal deprivation and intensity, right? You're either fucking hardcore or you're not fucking at all. And those are the kind of, <laughs> to put it in a really blunt, like non-academic uh, sense.
0: So to quote School of Rock, you're not hardcore unless you live hardcore. Is that what you're saying?
1: I think that's what I'm saying. <laughs> or in this context, it's more like you're not softcore unless you live
0: softcore. <laughs> well will play.
1: But anyway, uh, Pratt continued... What we wanted to create was the feeling that people were holding back, that things were dark, that everything's got to be saved. Lights, heating. Given the focus on light deprivation, it also makes sense that the filmmakers were really concerned with how they were going to, like, make the color black pop in this movie. Yeah. Right? So, according to Anthony Pratt, who was the designer on the film... We wanted to have a lot of blacks in the picture. We talked about silver retention and did lots of tests with the Technicolor ENR process, but the way it turned out to be lit was pretty meaty anyway, so we didn't use it. We kept the fill light down and just made sure it had the claustrophobic feeling of that period. Of course, there was a huge input from the muted colors of the art department. So this is cool for a couple of reasons. One, it shows how they're using this lack of light to reflect the period piece, right? And so... The period piece isn't just the way people talk. It's not just the way they're dressed. It's all of these little teeny tiny details that you might not even think of. And these guys are sitting there just dissecting the hell out of it. And I think that's really, really cool. But I think the other thing that's cool about this is they talk about how it does play in to every other department. All of these different departments have to work together in order to get that authentic 1940s feel. If even one of them is off, then something isn't going to
0: feel right. This is the actual definition of filmmaking which is collaboration. And it's working with all these different people to bring maybe it's one vision from one person to life um in this case the writer director but it's still all of these people working together to bring this goal to life.
1: Right. And so as as boring as this movie may be I think this stuff is pretty impressive. Yeah. I think they got it right. So that's pretty cool. Um, On top of all this stuff that we just talked about, the movie was also shot at night, or at least a lot of it was. And they had to go through some extra steps to maintain the accuracy of the period drama. So the night exteriors were generally lit using something called a Wendy light, which creates like a fill light in the scene so you can actually see the people um, and some other practical lights around the setting. And there was one scene filmed in a park that had Ray Fiennes and Stephen Ray. And for that scene they took advantage of a location where there were actual lamps that followed a bend in the path and that gave like a sense of depth to the lighting but they realized that the modern mercury vapor and sodium lamps had to be refitted with tungsten balanced fluorescence in order to make it look like the actual light from the time period Hmm. so these guys are going as deep as changing the light bulbs in the street lamps to make it look more accurate you you or I probably wouldn't notice what kind of light bulb they had in there at all you know what I mean but like they're looking at everything. And so if you're watching this movie to scrutinize it for its historical accuracy, first of all, fuck you. But like, <laughs> second of all, you're going to find that they have everything down to a T.
0: Yeah, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh, wait, no, he doesn't do history. He criticizes <laughs> um, the star positions. But
1: Well, tungsten and lighting and all that shit is still science. He might nerd out on
0: that. <laughs> yeah, for sure.
1: Um, um, but yeah. So what? one last thing for this section, which is that in addition to the light and darkness... Uh, rain and mist also contributed significantly to the atmosphere of the movie, starting with the poster that Jared talked about at the beginning <laughs> of the show. And this is some more really nerdy, really detailed shit. But here's a quote about how they made the rain for the movie. All right. The size of the rain is quite crucial to how it's photographed. You don't want it to be too light because it becomes like a mist, but you don't want it too heavy because then it's unreal. We wanted to capture that halfway between rain and mist look that you get in England. But to get that, you have to put up a big light to see it. So they literally did the science of like, how does this light illuminate this size water droplet to look like the actual weather in England? And that's like... Some hardcore shit,
0: it, sure. It's so detailed. So yeah, like you were saying, if you want to criticize this movie for its historical accuracies and depiction of the time, you're kind of shit out of luck because they really nailed all of the details for this. You can criticize the story and you could have your complaints or your critiques of that section of it but as far as the actual like design of the film the costume the sets the fucking rain and the size of like the water like you can't really critique that because they went above and beyond to make sure that it was as accurate as possible
1: everything came together to set a really solid tone for the movie but of course jared there's something that contributes to the tone of a film that you don't see of course it's something that you hear what is that
0: That is the music. Um, And we're going to touch very briefly on the composer for this film because I think he's worth noting. So Jordan already had a composer in mind for this film. He wanted his longtime collaborator, composer Elliot Goldenthal, to do the film. But there was a scheduling conflict. Goldenthal was committed to score Titus for 1999 for his other work companion, Julie Taymor. So he had to keep looking. And he found another possible option, a man named John Barry. John Barry was considered and he wrote a demo theme for the film which actually ended up on his 2001 solo album called Eternal Echoes. Other than it ended up on a solo album, that theme didn't end up in the film. He was still not really sure what to do. But he ended up settling with Michael Nyman as the composer. And it's funny for us to say that he settled for Michael Nyman because Nyman's body of work is incredible. He's been composing music since the 1960s after studying at the Royal Academy of Music as well as at King's College London. A fun fact in the beginning of his career, he ended up working as a music critic, where he became the first person to apply the word minimalist when critiquing music. So there you go. Um, We'd be here all day if we were to talk about his full music, like his full catalog of music. So we'll just focus on his work in the film world. Most notably before this film, he's known for the scoring of the 1993 movie The Piano, whose soundtrack went on to become a multi-platinum success and even earned him nominations for a Golden Globe and for a BAFTA. Nyman's most recent compositions were released back in 2016, but it looks like he's been pretty inactive since then. But regardless, we had to mention him because the score in this film is great. There's not a ton we found on the making of it. but. He has this incredible body of work to back up all of his years of hard work and dedication to the craft of just not even just film scoring, but classical music composition.
1: Oh, yeah. And I mean, from the moment that this movie kicks off, by the way, you hear some loud, dramatic ass music and it sets the tone like instantly from the start. And without that, it could be very, very different. He
0: does a fantastic job with scoring and scoring the shit out of this movie. This is the part of the show where we talk about symbolism, metaphors, and illusions. There's a lot of symbolism, and there's a lot of different things, but we also only have so much time on the show, so we're just going to touch on a couple little things.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a whole aspect of this movie that deals with like symbolism related to the war and all that kind of stuff that we're not even going to dive into because frankly it's just kind of boring shit the other part about it i think we've talked about enough already which is that idea of like religion and faith versus lack of faith and lack of religion and all that kind of stuff that comes up in the movie we've talked about that plenty so we're just going to mention a couple of fun little illusions and then we're going to move on
0: yeah so there was one thing before the ones that we had written down that i'd actually forgotten to write down on our on our sheet I didn't know if you noticed this, but in one scene, and I forget which, I wish I wrote it down, I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a car that they walk by, and on the license-
1: Is it Lightning McQueen?
0: ka No. no. Um, <laughs> on the license plate of the car, it says 666.
1: I saw that, Okay, dude. so it
0: wasn't just me,
1: okay. I saw that, and I was like, <sighs> Dude, I was like, "Oh, this is metal as fuck." But then I was also thinking, like, "Oh, this whole thing's about like Catholicism and stuff." So, I, th- that has to be in there on purpose.
0: There has to be something intentional. But anyway, I just I didn't know if you saw that, but
1: yeah, I did, dude. I did. I totally forgot about it until you mentioned it. But I like my little satanic heart just like welled with pride <laughs> when I saw that.
0: Um, anyway, one of the things we want to talk about is the film that the Maurice and Sarah see at that theater when he's following her out of the theater, things like that. The film that's being screened is a film called 21 Days Together, which was released in 1940. Graham Greene, the author of the novel, co-wrote the script for 21 Days Together, although the name of the film they see in the novel is never mentioned.
1: So that's kind of a fun little little thing. Yeah. Right? A fun little illusion. And then on the other side of the spectrum, there's an allusion to the end of the affair in a more recent I guess it's not that much more recent now. Jesus Christ, I'm an old man. So oh This book came out in 2004. <laughs> David Sedaris has a book called Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim, which is a great book, but he has a story called The End of the Affair in that book.
0: Huh. So there you go. There you go. The more you know. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, let's finish this up and talk about the release and the reception.
1: So like most of this episode, there aren't a ton of stories surrounding the making of the release or the reception, but we did find one thing worth talking about, and that is, once again, the controversial sex scenes. By this point, we have already noted that the film could double for softcore porn, and in many ways, it does. But other than the sex scenes, the rest of the film is pretty docile. It's a solid period drama. Even though the rest of the film is relatively tame, it was given what's called an 18 certificate in the United Kingdom, which is the equivalent of an R rating here in the U.S. I think it's actually a smidge more stringent even than an R rating is in the U.S. Um, And the reason for that being is a parent can choose to bring their child to an R rated film in the U.S. But I don't believe that you can go to an 18 film in the U.K. even with parental guidance. I think you're just fucked. So... It's a little bit more stringent. Um, if you, if anybody from the UK knows more about this and wants to tell me, please do, because I'm. This is kind of a guesstimate for me. But um, the reason it was given that 18 certificate is that one sensor found that all of the shots of nudity between Julianne Moore and Rafe Fiennes were too graphic, particularly that shot of Rafe's ass gyrating around on the couch. That one gave him some real, real trouble. Yep. So. They gave it the 18 certificate, but it turns out there was a bit of drama surrounding the 18 certificate rating. Apparently, after this rating was announced, Ray Fiennes, Julianne Moore, Neil Jordan, and Stephen Woolley made a bit of a stink over the certificate, and they did not agree with the British Board of Film Classification. Not even a little bit. And honestly, their reasoning made sense. They were primarily pissed off because the decision meant that English 16 and 17-year-olds couldn't see the movie, even though they could legally get married have sex, and drive a car. So that makes sense to me, right? It's like, if you can do all this other shit, if you can have sex legally, why can you not watch sex on the screen legally? Yeah, It's an interesting question. So they were upset about that, but they were also pissed off because the rating systems in other countries had been way more lenient. So for example, in America, the film was rated R, which meant that teenagers could go see the movie as long as they were accompanied by an adult. And in Ireland, which is considered one of the most notorious countries in the world when it comes to censorship, the film only got a 15 certificate, meaning that you could see it if you were 15 or above. So I think that the filmmakers and the cast had a pretty good reason to be pissed off. They were also grumpy, though, because this movie was an Oscar contender. And the more people who see it, the more likely it is to get into that nomination category, right? So I think they were a little grumpy about getting snubbed, too. So... It was a big deal, and Stephen Woolley went on record saying that the decision was shocking, especially because the sex scenes were very short and not particularly graphic. He obviously didn't read the description on (laughs) kidsinmind.com, because if he'd read that, he would have thought it was smut. But anyway, he compared the classification to a different movie called Eight Women, and that movie was made by Peter Greenaway. That movie got a 15 certificate, even though it was very misogynistic, and the posters basically showed anal sex on him so shit this was kind of a comparison he's like hey man how come that movie's 15 and mine's 18 you know he said quote there's nothing in our film except for a bit of bottom which is such a cute way to say it in the lovemaking scene they said there was too much movement from Rafe. in the second lovemaking scene they are semi-clothed woolly went on to say quote there is a double standard operating in that violence has become acceptable on screen it's okay to show your children explicit violence like in the Bond films, where we have murder, mayhem, and death. And then we have a scene of making love, and they are not allowed to see it.
0: This sounds very familiar. Who just talked about this a little bit earlier? Oh right, I did
1: <laughs> Right. So there you go. Um and Rafe Vines backed up Woolly, adding, quote, In this particular instance, I think it's absurd. Completely absurd. I don't think the sexuality in it is sadistic or abusive or based on violence, which are, by the way, the things that would usually earn you an 18 certificate. Right. If it's just regular fucking, you're usually good to go. If it's violent fucking, you're not good to go. So that's usually the difference. And that was not being observed here. Rafe went on to say it's mutually consenting adults making love, which is why we are all here. And that's what I was talking about with Jared's parents earlier in the show. And that's why Jared's here today. Julianne Moore piled onto the criticism with a bit of an awkward personal anecdote. Specifically, she noted that her grandparents had seen the movie love scenes and all and quote, they were not upset at all. So if it's good enough for her grandparents, it should be good enough for the British film rating system. Um, And then finally the director, Neil Jordan took a rather funny and sarcastic shot at the BBFC in general saying quote, I think they should publish those guidelines so that we know how to have sex ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Which cracks me the fuck up, dude. What a great response. Despite all of this, I think, perfectly legitimate criticism from the cast and crew, the BBFC defended its decision and insisted that the sex scenes in the film were too strong. Spokeswoman Sue Clark, who I would assume is very boring, said, quote, the sex scenes in it are not permissible at 15 because of the nature of the sex. But in my opinion, the nature of the sex in the movie... Is just that it happens. So I don't really know what the big deal is. Yeah. Unless there's something about like the adultery that makes it way worse to them. But it's funny it's but it's are we in the Scarlet Letter
0: when, no, what the fuck? No, but dude, there's so much irony in that because in nineteen ninety nine that's when Bill Clinton was impeached. And he was impeached for lying about adultery to Congress. Does that obviously this is a British film, but that's like a weird like contrast like does that mean that because it like you said does that mean that if it's adultery then it gets a stronger rating but why should it get a stronger rating then when shit like that happens in real life and we're seeing it's, it dude, on I don't know. the it, six o'clock tri- news every day
1: here's something else to think about too man austin powers the spy who shagged me came out the same year I would argue that that movie is much more sexually intense and vulgar than this one, even though this one has sex scenes.
0: I don't know. Would you agree
1: with that? I don't know. Yes, of course. The Spy Who (laughs) Shagged Me got a 12 rating from the BBC. What? Are you kidding me? So you could be 12 and go see this shit, but you couldn't go see The End of the Affair. Holy shit. If you were 16 or 17. That's nuts. So that's a crazy... I would have been pissed about that. Yeah,
0: I would have been too. So, like, this whole story got us thinking about how films are rated. There was the rating system that we just talked a little bit about in the UK with the BFCC.
1: BBFC. That we
0: talked about with the BBFC. But we're going to talk a little bit about the MPAA, or the Motion Picture Association of America. That's the group of people that rate every single major wide-release film that is released.
1: You know that little green band thing that you see before
0: your movie trailers? That's these homies. That's these guys. So it's time for some fun facts or just facts, depending on how you view all of this. But anyway. Yeah,
1: you give me the facts and I'll tell you how fun they are. So in
0: 2018, the Los Angeles Times released an article entitled, Famously Secretive, MPAA Pulls Back the Curtain on Ratings a Little Bit.
1: And the irony behind that, of course, is that when you pull back the curtain, you can see more and you get a worse rating.
0: In the article, it was revealed that the MPAA has rated 29,791 films as of 2018, and most of them have received an R rating. Really? R rated films account for nearly 58% of all titles rated by the organization, followed by PG at 18%.
1: No shit. I would not have guessed that the percentage was that high. Yeah,
0: neither would. Until reading this article, neither did I. The MPAA is made up of nine raiders, consisting of five mothers and four fathers from California, Illinois, New York, Ohio, Maryland, and Hawaii. But their identities, for the most part, have remained shrouded in secrecy, Ooh. just like Slipknot. But it's important to note that they are parents.
1: <laughs> Corey Taylor's the one raiding all these movies?
0: We know Corey Taylor, we know Sean Crayon, and we know Jim Root. The other ones, silence. But it's important to note that they are parents, because this plays a critical role in determining a film's rating, particularly an R rating. A study showed that parents would assign an R to a movie when it contains three or more uses of the word fuck, but if there is more than one scene of nudity or sex, the movie will generally get an R rating. The study also showed that parents are way more concerned, like I was saying earlier, with sexual content than with violence or language, which really tells you everything you need to know about America. But anyway, (laughs) understanding how the MPAA works is imperative to understanding why this film was given an R rating. While the rest of the film is a pretty typical love story slash wartime drama period piece, the numerous sex scenes automatically call qualified it for an R rating. I think it's interesting to think if this movie had only one sex scene or just a little less nudity, it would be granted to, it would have probably been granted a PG-13. But just because of, like, even if this movie had two sex scenes, I think that automatically automatically qualifies it for an R rating, which is just probably Yeah, which is just weird to think about. I don't know.
1: It is weird, so, for sure. But it's all very arbitrary. And I'm, I'm shocked to learn that it's so few people. Yeah. I would have assumed this was like a whole corporate organization.
0: That's what I thought too. Working
1: on rating these movies and not just like 13 people in a dark room with robes on.
0: I feel like, year, I think years ago there was a documentary that was released. I'm curious to know if it had any validity to it, if it holds up today. But I believe it was called This Film Is Not Yet Rated. And it was a look as much as you could see into the organization, um, into the MPAA and how they rate films. I, I think love we'll to check that. I think out. it was in like the early two thousands, so things have changed, but might be worth looking into. But graphic nudity yeah, concerns it aside, out. it is showtime.
1: It's sh- well, it's been showtime the whole movie because they've been showing quite a bit. <laughs> that was a stupid joke, but guess what? I don't give a fuck. yeah. So so. Uh, <laughs> Sony released this film in a limited release on December 3rd, 1999, with a slow expansion set for the following weeks. So this movie is almost a technicality on the podcast, because in a lot of places, it technically came out in 2000. Yeah, The
0: the Virgin Suicides was another film like this.
1: So we slipped it right in under the radar here, and we're just going to go ahead and release it and not worry about it. So... It was released on December 3rd for a little bit. Um, most likely, the film was put out in a limited release so that it could qualify for Oscar nominations, as most films do around this time of the year. It was booked into seven theaters and pulled in $198,535 with an average of about 28 grand per screen. And in the first seven weeks of release, it expanded to only 92 other theaters in the country. But in those 92 theaters, it pulled $3.4 million. So that's not bad. No, not at all. We're, we're talking some decent numbers here. In the eight weeks of its release, it expanded into 686 theaters with a gross of about $2.3 It dipped about 30% in gross ticket sales the following week and never expanded further than that. Eventually, the film was released worldwide in February of 2000, and it did okay. Uh, The reviews were fine, mildly positive, but not necessarily rave, and we're going to get into some of those right
0: now. Yeah. So, as of today, the film has a 67% critic consensus on Rotten Tomatoes out of 66 total reviews and a 74% audience score. So, again, not terrible.
1: It's got worse ratings than the 1955 one. Yeah. Even though people consistently claim to like this one better than the 1955 one. So, that's very
0: interesting. Yeah. So, as usual, we've pulled a positive and negative review uh, to show the contrasting sides of this. The positive review I found this week was from Janet Maslin of the New York Times. And the review is, quote, The End of the Affair is Neil Jordan's intoxicating version of Graham Greene's 1951 novel, in which an illicit romance becomes a far greater gamble than either lover could ever have imagined. It is also the best and most graceful Greene adaptation since The Third Man. Far beyond bringing to the screen an unusually intimate and autobiographical book, Jordan underscores the inviting eclecticism of his own interest and the welcome fearlessness with which he pursues them. To a more conventional filmmaker, there might be little to recommend a mid-1940s period piece that hinges on matters of religious faith. But for him, this is one more intelligent brooding love story with a secret twist, and he easily carries the viewer along for the ride. That's great. Yeah, I'd that's, that's a pretty good review.
1: Yeah, that's just fine. It also has some beautiful language. Inviting eclecticism is, is a
0: lovely phrase. <laughs> it's a good, yeah, it's a good one.
1: Good job, Janet. <laughs> All right, so now I got to read the grumpy review. <laughs> and this is from Rob Blackwelder of Spliced Wire. So without further ado, here's Rob. Even if The End of the Affair didn't invite comparisons to The English Patient, with Ray Fine's autopilot performance as another reflective World War II-era Englishman immersed heart and soul in an adulterous love affair, this Neil Jordan adaptation of Graham Greene's novel would still be an ambitious misfire. But while Jordan's talent for screenwriting and direction are evidenced in dialogue, I'm jealous of these shoes because they take you away from me, I'm jealous of this stocking because it kisses your entire leg and structure, Fine's point of view transition into Moore's as he reads her stolen diary. The director's use of other stale and banal plot devices betray the pedestrian underpinnings of this seemingly complex film.
0: So this isn't, I mean, this isn't a terrible negative review. I actually think this is a fair, this is a fair negative review in the sense that it's not like trashing it, but it's saying like, there's some good, but then there's, here's why it doesn't work.
1: And he's right, too. Some of the dialogue is real corny, but I expect that from a dramatic love story. So I'm okay with it. The structure is weird. I don't necessarily think that it needs to be as complicated as it is. The story itself is not entirely complex, and the structure is almost needlessly complex. So I I agree with that aspect of the review for sure. But I don't think it's a bad movie. No, I don't think so. I think the truth is somewhere in the middle of these two reviews. I agree. At least for me.
0: So let's talk about the legacy beyond 1999. As we mentioned before, this film was most likely put out in just a limited release so that it could qualify for the Academy Awards nominations. And it was nominated. Julianne Moore was nominated for Best Actress and Roger Pratt was nominated for Best Cinematography. But the film didn't just qualify for the Academy Awards. It went on the full Hollywood Awards season circuit. So, given that this was a British film, it was almost it was also nominated for several BAFTA awards. And obviously, this was a British film, so this is where it was like the biggest performer. So, it was nominated for the following awards: best cinematography for Roger Pratt, best costume design for Sandy Powell, best film for Stephen Woolley and Neil Jordan, best performance by an actor in a leading role for Ray Fiennes, best performance by an actress in a leading role for Julianne Moore. And Best Screenplay for Neil Jordan, who won the award.
1: There you go. And
0: they were also nominated for two Golden Globes, Best Director for Neil Jordan, and Best Performance by an Actress in a Motion Picture Drama for Julianne Moore. But, and I'm excited to see your reaction to this, perhaps the most important award that we can see went to Ray Fiennes. And this is a real thing. He won the Best Eyewear Award at the GQ Men of 2000 Awards because of the pair of National Health Service spectacles that he wore in the film. And I'm going to be what fucking fuck? honest. I barely remember him even having glasses on in the scene.
1: If you put a gun to my head and asked me if he was wearing glasses in this movie, I would not have gotten the right answer.
0: I, I, I couldn't tell you, but apparently he did.
1: Wow. What, a, what the fuck is this awards show? And what the fuck are these categories? It was,
0: it was the... It was, the, it was the transition from the 90s into the 21st century, but...
1: You, you know what, dude? I will say, this is the first movie that we've had in a couple weeks that didn't get nominated for a Razzie. That's true. So that's... We're ticking things up here a little bit.
0: So since its release, there hasn't been a massive legacy, but it was nominated for a Best Film list. It was on the AFI list, the American Film Institute, not the band,
1: no, it's the a fire inside. <laughs>
0: this. Uh, the AFI nominated the film for its 100 Years, 100 Passions film list. Sadly, it did not make the final cut. Although Ray Fines does appear on the list of these films for *The English Patient*, so
1: *The English Patient* is like the bigger, smarter brother to this movie.
0: It seems. To wrap this up, do you have any burning questions?
1: No, I mean, it. I get it all. It all makes sense. Yeah, I feel like. I might. I might ask why the need to tell it in this weird, disjointed, out-of-order way. But,
0: eh, whatever. Yeah, we kind of talked about it, so. All right, let's get into our reactions. Um, why don't you kick this off? What did you like and dislike about the movie?
1: Okay, I'm going to start with the things that I liked about it. Okay? I liked the starting line. This is a diary of hate. I think that's a really interesting way to start the did movie. Did someone
0: say the starting line?
1: Tell me what you thought about when you- God damn it. Yes. Um, I like that. And related to that, I like movies that start with voiceovers. I know it's corny and weird and cheesy, and they tell you not to do Did it. Did you not see but adaptation? But I like it when they do it. And God help you if you use voiceover in your work, my friends. God help you. It's flaccid, sloppy writing. Any idiot can write voiceover narration to explain the thoughts of a character. Okay, that's it. One hour for lunch. Uh, so I, I like that, even though I'm not supposed to like that. <laughs> I I thought there were a couple of really clever lines in here, too. I like the line, goodness has so little fictional value. I thought that was fucking brilliant. I also thought when Rafe asks Julianne Moore, what if he heard? And she says he wouldn't recognize the sound. I was like, damn, that's a sick burn. (laughs) That's a great line. That's a real sick burn. For those of you who didn't see it, they're fucking. And the husband comes home, and he's like, what if he heard us? And she's like, he wouldn't know what he was hearing if it bit him in the ass. So... What a clever little line that yeah. is! I also really liked the line when Ray finds goes back upstairs after the explosion, and he finds her praying, and she explains what she's doing, and he goes, "It have been more practical to come downstairs." I thought that was fucking hilarious. <laughs> uh, so I I liked a few of the lines in there. I I thought there were some good things there, and I I also really really liked that the last line of the movie isn't spoken aloud it's only typed out on the typewriter and so if you're not paying attention you'll miss it and i think that's a really clever way to end the movie yeah i really really like that um so those are the things that i liked the things that i didn't like i didn't like the soft focus shit that's like my biggest pet peeve in movies i hate soft focus camera angle shit so that's a it's not angles i hate soft focus lens shit i think it's corny so i didn't like that the other thing that I didn't really like is there's the part where they show the explosion scene from both uh Bendrix's perspective and Sarah's perspective. And I felt like they showed too much of it the second time. Like I okay. felt like I watched the same scene, like too much of it. Yeah. They didn't trust me to get that I was seeing the same thing from two perspectives. Like too much repetition. And it Yeah, and it just it it took me out of the movie because I was like, wait a second, did something happen to the like, is it showing me the same thing again? Did this fuck up? And I like paused it and checked. So I kind of thought that too I thought when that I watched it. That was kind of weird. Yeah, that was a weird editing move. So I didn't really like that. But otherwise, I mean, it's fine. It's just it's not a movie that that I would choose to watch normally. But that doesn't make it a bad movie. So my likes and dislikes, I'm trying to have like a grain of salt. on
0: Yeah. It.
1: Um, what about you, man?
0: I I think my my biggest dislike with it of anything is that it almost jumps around too much. Um, the soft focus didn't bug me as much as it... I know some people really can't stand it. Um, and that's totally fine. I guess it didn't bug me that much. I've never had a huge objection to it. Um, but I thought that the structure of the film itself was a little bit weird in how it just kind of constantly jumped around. Like, And there weren't too many things that... like, It, it almost was sometimes hard to focus and be like oh wait why is he I thought they were to go oh wait no we jumped ahead and we did there was a time jump and I didn't catch it maybe it was just me maybe I was just bad at paying attention but there were I guess there were parts of it that were a little bit convoluted when it came to structure um,
1: no it was a little jarring yeah. yeah
0: just a little bit jumping back and forth it was, it was a little too much um, I think that some of the dialogue is a little bit corny kind of like we were saying um, earlier but at, at the same time I didn't think this was a bad movie. I thought this was okay. And I thought this was a a good attempt at a period piece. I think that all the details we went over, like even with the things that you can't really see on the first watch are really impressive to look at from the way that the costumes are designed to the sets to all of the details and like the painstaking effort they put into the details of this um, to make it as accurate as possible. I think that... um, I think the acting is pretty good. I have no issues there on anything. I think it's a. Yeah, I, I think agree. it's really well cast um, and everybody puts on a great performance. And I guess, I think the thing that I actually like the most that caught my attention more than anything was a film that not only was a period piece, but explored this idea of the relationship between religion and man. And the idea of... The relationship between god and people like it's it almost kind of reminded me in a weird way of i know this will sound weird and it'll be kind of a jarring jump but the approach that m night shamalan took with signs where it was this idea huh. of talking about religion in the context of humanity and other worldly things and how you explain certain things is it because you see miracles, do you think people just get lucky? Like I almost kind of saw obviously not with aliens in this film, but like with this idea of right exploring the idea of a higher power. And like Fuck
1: dude, I got to watch Signs again. I don't remember any of that kind oh, of stuff. Oh dude,
0: that was I <laughs> I really liked that movie when I was growing up and um I had a little kick of like M Night Shyamalan films before I think up until like The Happening or whatever. I think that was a movie with Mark Wahlberg, but um yeah i re- signs i watched later as an adult and i was like holy shit i forgot all of this that was happening but wow i liked that the end of the affair talked about and kind of had the guts to talk about um this relationship between religion and humans and this idea of is it really a miracle is there actually god or is it do people did when she prayed, was she actually, did God actually bring him back to life or was that just a coincidence? Like,
1: well, that's interesting, dude. And maybe we should have talked about that in the burning questions part because that is something I was thinking about is like when she kisses that kid on the face, Lance, and his birthmark goes away. Is that meant to exactly. be a sign that there is actual like intervention going on from a higher power? Yeah,
0: it's it's it raises this really interesting question and the thing that I do give this movie um, even if it does kind of lull in certain parts and it kind of goes on it poses these questions that like we we're talking about with the characters and how in that love triangle it's like was there a bad guy was or was there a good guy and it gives you all these questions about their morality and their character and then it gives you these questions in addition to that about the idea of higher power and religion or the thought that maybe people just get lucky or it's all just a coincidence. Like It, it keeps you thinking after the movie's finished. And I think that's really important for a film to, um, to last in a landscape, particularly if it's a film that is going to... Or a story that has the guts to go and explore something that is metaphysical or spiritual. So... I appreciated the effort Absolutely. that it gave.
1: Hell yeah, dude. There.
0: I agree. All right. So we finished. We're done. We're done. That's the end of the affair, bro. I know. All right. So next week, we have our first documentary.
1: We do. It's going to be interesting to see how we cover a documentary. Yeah, because we
0: can't do a cast. We can't... And the, the pitch and the sell and the making of, that's all kind of the same story. So...
1: It's kind of a documentary about a documentary.
0: so this will be interesting. Whoa. (laughs) So (laughs) the next film we're going to be covering is called Buena Vista Social Club. It was a documentary film directed by Wim Wenders about the music of Cuba. We like music, so that works. All right, uh, this film is streaming on HBO, and you can also find it wherever you get your films digitally. iTunes, YouTube, uh, Amazon. Amazon, wherever you can find it. So... All right, um, that's all I've got to say. Do you have anything else?
1: I'm good, man. All
0: right, we'll see you guys for the next episode with Buena Vista Social Club. Be kind, rewind. We'll see you later. Bye. Coming soon to theaters. Hi, I'm Ry Cooter. I discovered the joys of Cuban music many years ago, but it was only recently that I learned just how many of the long forgotten, yet legendary Cuban musicians were still alive and well. Director of Wings of Desire in Paris, Texas, comes the story of an American musician who went searching for the sounds of an island and discovered the soul of a people. Artisan Entertainment presents the Buena Vista Social Club. They were part of a wonderful tradition that was just waiting to be rediscovered.